Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Some people just know the best rate for you is a rate based on you with Allstate. Not one based on Carol. She's more focused on hitting a high note than the car in front of her. Why pay a rate based on anyone else? Get one based on you with DriveWise from Allstate. Not available in Alaska or California, subject to terms and conditions. Rates are determined by several factors, which vary by state. In some states, participation in DriveWise allows Allstate to use your driving data for purposes of rating. While in some states, your rate could increase with high-risk driving. Generally, safer drivers will save with DriveWise. Allstate Fire and Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates Northbrook, Illinois. From the halls of assembly, you'll hear us scream and shout. Our love of Indiana is manic and devout. Archie and his boys, we discuss in unique manner. We won't be satisfied until we hang another banner. Us two goofy guys go by names of Ward and Eric. And as you probably know by now, we're Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hello, Ward. Uh, it's good to see you, even if it's on a computer monitor. Yes, that is true. We are still abiding by social uh, distancing, which is something that people have used uh, against me my entire life. I'm very used to people social distancing from me. Yeah, I really didn't have an excuse before this, but now I'm like, sorry, Eric, that's what the government says. <laughs> it has been a good uh, week in the world of the Hoosier hysterics because of last week's release of the Coach Archie Miller episode, uh, which was fun to kind of go back and I just did quick checks on it just to make sure it was real. I yeah, that to make it actually sure. happened. Yes, exactly. But it was, I, he would talk and I'm like, oh my God, Archie Miller is talking to the Hoosier hysterics. That's so weird. <laughs> How did that happen? How did they, well, and it, it happened because of, of the listeners listening to this podcast right now who have just made this thing worth coming on. It's not worth talking to you and me unless these people are listening. That's, that's what's worthwhile for coach Miller. And man, I'm, I'm still, I'm still high off of that. And I haven't smoked weed for a few days. (laughs) (laughs) It's also made possible Archie coming on the podcast because, well, as you know, we're powered by, Pigs. Pigs. I just do I just do that now as a button just so they make sure they know what you said. This is a first, but someone either on the message board or on Twitter, said that the next time we tape a reasonable Rabby episode, they want to hear the peak siren call. Then they'll get to see what I see every time. They, hey, I am nothing if not for the people. I will say, because I've seen your face do that dozens and dozens of times now, my eyes sort of gravitated above you to your virtual background where Coach Miller 
uh, is on the sidelines and he's probably saying something to a player or a referee and his mouth is open. So I had a few moments of imagining it was the pigs coming out of his mouth. And that, that's a pretty good visual too. That is good. As Can you imagine? I mean, that's when you really get him loosened up. Well, listen, as everyone out there knows, let's get the business out of the way. Uh, this podcast is for free. All, mm -hmm. uh, all, all of it, which I'm sure many people wish that it would just go away, but it's for free. So yeah, it's going to be why it hangs around. around. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think people wish we would charge for it. So then it would just go away. Um, but it is for free and it will always be for free, our podcast. And we have rejected the idea of doing advertisements, uh, straight ads for it. We have not done any of that yet. We like to be able to promote the especially local Bloomington businesses that we love, like Zagreb's and Buffaloes and so many others. Um, but there are some costs to running the podcast. And we made a deal with a glassware company that makes beautiful IU glassware. By the way, there's been some confusion. We are not selling Hoosier Hysterics glassware. Believe yeah. it or not, we yes, <laughs> that is not something we have put our faces on. We figure it's enough that some people have bought the t-shirts. The last thing people need is to be staring at our faces when consuming a beverage. No, they you, you want to you want an appetite, even if it's for a drink. In fact, sometimes people stare at our faces and then are forced to go drink something. <laughs> well, just then to maybe deal it'll with work. It. Maybe it'll work. But I will say, regardless, don't miss a chance to have a piece of Hoosier history. Purchase your exclusive historic IU glassware today at collegegradshop.clam. Damn. Oh, dot clam. Dot clam. Dot clam. Yes. We, don't, we try to get dot clam, but that was taken. So we went with collegegradshop.com forward, forward slash. Forward slash. From bottom left to upper right. Yep. Mm -hmm. Collegegradshop.com forward slash hysterics with all the letters why is why are there two slashes well it's because he and axel didn't get along so well <laughs> <laughs> like why would they do that why would they make two slashes why didn't they you know, just when they were when gates when bill gates and steve jobs were making computers when they were just in a garage somewhere you're, you're to blaming make them for the two slashes yeah, yeah i blame them i think that they made two slashes why didn't they just leave it off my god steve jobs would change the charger every two years would have to go out and buy different things he got rid of the the uh the headphone jack why didn't he just get rid of one of the slashes well we should blame al gore too he invented the internet so he he's got to carry part of that load by the way did you say college grad shop dot clam slash hysterics you did right yeah yeah okay dot clam yeah i and i and i told him yeah dot clam we'll we'll try to buy that too when we get the twitter handle with all the letters but we have all the letters in hysterics i said that too earlier but you missed it so maybe the listeners did as well yeah i wasn't but, paying but attention the, i've been drinking these are my go-to my four i go with the pint glasses you can get the tumblers or the wine glasses but i i want as much liquid as possible in there uh, for my cold brew, for my Coke Zero, for my ice waters. And that's all I use now. The children have have asked to use. My daughter, she's 10. No I've good. allowed her to, but with very stern warnings of how careful she needs to be with them because they are my my prized possession on the the kitchen front. So listen, enough of the business. Let's get to the fun. Because two weeks ago, we interviewed Isaiah Thomas. Last week, we interviewed Coach Archie Miller. 
and we are just, it seems like we've been on this yellow brick road of legendary Hoosiers since we started this, but these last three weeks have, have put it on a different level. And the guy that we get to interview today, and we did this interview a couple weeks back, is the first, he's the first Hoosier hero for me. He's he, our childhood hero. Yes, he was the one who kind of set the standard. He's the one, I sent out a tweet like this. If you look up IU basketball in the encyclopedia, hard pressed to find another image that you would put there for what I Indiana basketball means. Yeah, and, and, and beyond IU, you know, as, as coming up in the state and being a state basketball legend in that right, it's it's... I there there could be other arguments made for other people, but you can't say anybody deserves that entry in the dictionary more than him. And as you and I did our research on it, I'm I'm sorry, encyclopedia dictionaries right. don't have pictures. And let's be honest, there's not encyclopedias anymore. If you looked up the Wikipedia entry of yes. Indiana basketball, it would have a picture of Ward and I. it's wikipedia it's wikipedia we could just we could just edit it that's what i'm saying we'll just make it so if one of our listeners does that we'll send you a free t-shirt and a glass i'll buy you a glass okay yeah one glass i was saying i'm not i'm not going to give up any of my glasses (laughs) i'll buy you one glass uh listen i do want to make this point of of business though the the covid stuff everything Ward and I being separated for a lot of this stuff, we've had to change up how we do these interviews. And the first 15 minutes or so of this interview, 15, 20 minutes, the audio quality is not up to the level that we normally like to have it at. Um, So I think it's a function of everybody streaming at the same time. So it's just difficult for us to get that secure connection. We apologize, but it does get remarkably better about 15, 20 minutes in. So please stick with it because the meat of this conversation is a full course meal uh, if, you, if you stick around for it. I had, to, I had to go with that metaphor once I laid it out there. Let's just let them listen to the guy they came here to listen to, not us two yahoos. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm anxious about this one. I'd even say I'm nervous about this one, Eric. Tell everybody who's on the line with us. We are we are going right to Mount Rushmore of Indiana. That is what we are doing. I'm going to break this intro up into two parts, some stats and some awards. We are talking to a gentleman who, for Chrysler High School in Newcastle, Indiana, averaged 37.7 points per game as a senior, won Mr. Basketball in the state of Indiana, went to Indiana University, where he scored 2,438 points, which was an Indiana record when he graduated, is now second all-time. He is the fifth leading scorer all-time in the Big Ten, and keep in mind, only a three-point line for one of those years. He is number one all-time in threes for a season at Indiana at 107, number one all-time for a season in three-point percentage at 53%, number one all-time in free throw percentage, 11th all-time in assists, second all-time in steals. He has the fifth best Big Ten season field goal percentage of all time. This gentleman was a guard at (laughs) 60.6%. We are talking to a gentleman who is a two-time consensus first-team All-American, a three-time first-team All-Big Ten, a Big Ten Player of the Year. He started 120 out of 125 games at IU, 
He is an IU Hall of Fame member, inducted in 1997. He was the Indiana MVP four years, the first player to do that at Indiana. He was, of course, a Big Ten champion and a national champion in 1987. I don't even want to spend the time on all the other stuff he's done since Indiana, except for one thing I will say that happened while he was in Indiana, an Olympic gold medalist. Please welcome Mount Rushmore of Indiana, Steve Alford. Welcome, Steve. Thank you. Thanks so much. Uh, Humbling introduction. I appreciate that. Well, it is humbling to talk to you because you are, uh, for so many people listening, for the two of us, Ward and I are are in our early 40s, we grew up and were introduced to Indiana basketball and the way Indiana basketball should be because of you. And uh, I know that that we are speaking for so many people out there. So thank you for doing this. And let's just start with, we're in pretty crazy times right now with what's going on in the world with the coronavirus. Tell us what you're doing right now, Steve, and how it's impacting your current job. Yeah, it is. It's very different. I I was talking to my dad on the phone the other day about, um, I don't remember a March without basketball. It's March has always been whether I was playing at Newcastle, you wanted to get to that tournament in March, and you wanted to find out. I was very blessed. I got an opportunity to play in the one class era yes. where there was 350-odd schools competing for one championship, and you just wanted to know what your sectional bracket looked like and would you play the, the first or second game of the regional if you were able to advance and so on. And I was telling him, it's just I can't remember a time where March didn't have basketball. And so um, very just odd, eerie times. And now with this 14 kind of across the country doing a 14-day quarantine and um, it's been able to spend a lot of family time. My daughter and her, her fiance are living with Tanya and I for the time being until their, their wedding in June. So spending some time with that. My middle son, Bryce, her second child, rather youngest son, Bryce, just got home from Germany and his wife were in Scottsdale. And then my oldest son, Corey, and his wife, Haley. Corey's on my staff here. So um, we get to see see them a little bit we're letting bryce do his quarantine in scottsdale after being overseas and and hopefully we'll get together with him but uh it's been a time too uh i reflect back on my time with my dad and uh, i averaged one point a game my freshman year (laughs) um i can remember going into him and just telling him look something's got to change i want to be the best you've ever coached i don't want to be just another player and i can remember that's when he looked across the desk and said that's great. Then things have got to change on how you go about working at the game. And I always found that odd, and we kind of laugh about it now because I always felt like I was a gym rat. And I was in the gym all the time. I, you know, in grade school, the the bus would pick me up and from home, and it dropped me. I had to get a different bus and get a different pass to be dropped off at the high school just to go hang out with my dad at practice. So that was odd to hear, but I I learned valuable lesson on it's not just about being in the gym it's what you do in the gym and that's when he kind of developed the 50-minute all-american workout that he would later put on we put on two videos and it became a, a video that was used in a lot of camps across the country that we're awfully proud of and the next three summers i probably missed three total days of seven days a week of going through this but i can remember the thing he told me is 14 days is what it takes to develop a habit so 
let me see you do this workout for 14 straight days and then we'll revisit things. And after 14 days, I just got in the habit and it was something I needed to have done every day. I needed to do this workout every day. So now that we're in this quarantine, I'm just trying to take these 14 days and to just develop some different habits, um, you know, from a spiritual side. I've always spent about 20, 25 minutes each morning uh, of just growing my faith. And now I'm trying to do that 50 minutes and not just be a faith that I'm checking a box, but actually somewhere where I'm I'm growing every day. So I've dove into that in the last 14 days and just trying to create that, um, trying to work out four times a week instead of three times a week, mm-hmm. um, which as you get older, it's not, it's not easy, but just trying to establish um, establish that habit as well. And then, you know, it's I've never been the most patient guy. I like getting results quickly and uh, just trying to work on being more patient and spending a little bit more time here with my family and enjoying that time as we go through this. I'm just trying to, to listen to what the leaders are saying of our country that uh, hopefully we can get through this sooner than later. Amen. Now, we'll we'll talk more about you and your father, obviously. That was such an incredible relationship growing up and beyond. But we did hear a story that your mom gets some credit for developing your shooting touch that involved cans of Pringles. Can you, you tell our listeners about the early origin of your shooting touch? Yeah, I was just always, you know, I was always hanging out inside as a youngster, especially in the winter months in Indiana. And I wasn't at my dad's you know, practice, it always had to involve some kind of just basketball or doing something with the ball. I, I wasn't one of those kids that we didn't have video games when I was growing Atari, I think, came into play when I was young, but there just wasn't video games like there is today. So if you couldn't go outside, um, it had to do something with the ball. And I can remember her, I loved Pringles growing up. And just one day she emptied out a can of Pringles and put it in the middle of the floor and uh, gave me some ping pong balls, and next thing I know, I'm doing different kind of games of painting the ping pong balls different colors. Lakers were purple, and Celtics were green, and um, I did that with NBA teams, and then made up crazy games of just shooting ping pong balls in uh, Pringles. To this day, it's it's a clinic thing that I do for my camps of just doing things as a young young person of developing touch and. So it was something I started by putting it up against a glass window, glass sliding glass door to where I had the bank. Mm-hmm. And then I learned to, to bring it away from that to where you had no, you had no ability to bank. And I, it was little things like that, that I, I do think had a lot to do with me learning touch because I wasn't gifted athletically, but I, I was gifted with very good hand eye and a touch that was very good. I knew we were very similar, Steve. Uh, we just had one little difference. I would empty out the Pringles containers, too. I would just eat the chips and move on to the next one. That's all I did. I didn't do the touch thing. I just ate the Pringles. <laughs> yeah, you just you just forgot one minor detail. That's it. Just that one minor detail. And then always wondered why my touch wasn't so good. So let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about your childhood growing up in the state, great state of Indiana. It's a basketball state. Who were your... Uh, and when you were a kid, man, you had some great Indiana University Hoosiers to look to as great basketball players. Were there players when you were a kid that you looked up to and wanted to emulate or, or really idolized? No, there's no question. I And I grew up in a great area. My my dad was in the early 70s, the head coach at Martinsville High School. And Jerry Seastine was coming through during that time. And so I, I could look at Jerry to see 
you know, he's about six one, and uh, I watched how those were guys I wanted to emulate because I knew I wasn't going to be six eight or six nine, and I saw how hard he worked. And I remember going to the Martinsville Park and watching him in the summer play pickup games, and then obviously all the practices and games that my dad coached him in. Um, so I grew up around that, that you know, and his last national title with UCLA and '76. Coach Knight was winning his first, and my dad was a high school coach first there at Martinsville, and then we moved on to Newcastle. So I was right in the middle of being like a fourth, fifth grader at that time. And and so seeing Coach Wooden and then seeing Coach Knight, and then obviously Coach Knight would just take off from there that every kid just grew up in that state wanting to play for him. So um, I, I was, it was a great era, great era for me to go watch games. I can remember watching – Sam Drummer to Ray Tolbert uh, to you know Scott Skiles who was about a year or two older than me so just watching a lot of phenomenal players in the North Central Conference and in the state of Indiana that I got to follow just because my dad was a coach. Now you did get down to Coach Knight's basketball camp as a kid. What lasting impact did that have on you as a player, and and how much did that determine for you that that's the coach you wanted to go play for? Well, I started going as a third grader. Chad Tucker, uh, his dad, was uh, the head coach at um, uh, Coverdale, the Cloverdale at the time, and my dad was the basketball coach at Martinsville, so we got to go a year early. So actually, Chad and I got to go uh, in third grade instead of fourth grade, and I can remember Chad and I being in the same dorm room. I don't think we spoke that whole week. Uh, we were scared to death, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, the, scrawniest, the scrawniest kids there, and but um, I just I learned about the campus just every summer of making that walk um, to Assembly Hall and then seeing Coach Knight come in and do lectures and seeing him at night. Um, and then obviously each summer that we went, it seemed like uh, the persona of Coach and the, what he was doing was getting greater and greater. So by the time I got into high school, um, I knew that's where I wanted to go. And that's for somebody that was highly recruited, I never took an official visit anywhere, uh, including Indiana. Uh, it was really Coach Knight just calling me up one day and Dad pulling me from the lunchroom and calling him back and saying, yeah, I want to come. So it was uh, pretty easy recruiting on his part because that's where I wanted to go. So you mentioned the beauty of the single-class basketball system uh, that used to be the case in Indiana. Talk us through your senior year going to semi-state where you turned in a performance for the ages, but it did not quite equate to team success. But just walk us through what it was like playing. I believe that game was at Hinkle Field House and what, what that whole environment was like and what that game was like for you. Well, it was the, the whole era of, you know, just chasing one championship. It's more uh, everybody, everybody runs the same lane on the same track and everybody gets the blue ribbon. You just get a bunch of participation ribbons. And um, in my era, you actually had to win the game uh, to get a blue ribbon. And I like the idea of it. Uh, I think of what's happened now in class basketball, a lot of those rivalries are gone that used to be there. And we were able to win the sectional and regional that year and get to the Sima State, which was in the historic Hinkle Field House. And, um, I just I remember that day uh, for a long, long time because we played a very, very, very good broad ripple team, uh, beat them in a very difficult game, and then had to turn around. We were, we got the bad break of having to play the second game, uh, which that's part of the Hoosier hysteria. And Connors 
Connorsville got to play a morning game where they, they wanted a blowout. Uh, and then we lost to Connorsville in a, a good hard fought game that night. And Connorsville would end up winning the state championship. But uh, it's a day I'll remember because it's a, a day where I was 36 for 36 at the free throw line. And, um, <laughs> and I think, and yet it's a day I remember because it ended my high school career. That day was bittersweet because um, I had very good performances, but it was also the end of my high school career as well. Well, I want to just take a quick step back to playing in the Newcastle Chrysler Gym, the biggest in the country, uh, just on any given Friday night when a rival comes to town. What was it like? Well, it was the largest and finest field house anywhere in the world. Um, and to be able to call that my my home gym and practice there every morning before school and get my individual workouts done and do the things that I did for so many times in that gym was special. And when dad took the job there, one of the things I told him was that I want this place to be sold out. And my junior and senior year, uh, we sold out just about every home game. So to do that in a community of only 18,000 people is saying something when you're putting almost 10,000 up in a, in a gym. But that was that era. You, you played on only Friday and Saturday nights. Uh, which is much different than what they do now. Now they play on, I think, some Tuesdays and Wednesdays. And we didn't do that when I played. It was all Friday and Saturday. So it was kind of like the football uh, situation where you get all week, business people get all, all week to get geared up for those games. And probably the, the weekend I remember the most is on a Friday night, Marion and um, Coach Green and James Blackman, who was a good friend of mine who later played at Kentucky and uh, they came in on Friday night, and then Scotty Hicks, who went and played from Cathedral, that went and played at Notre Dame. Uh, we had ten thousand in on Friday, and then another ten thousand on Saturday. So on one weekend, we played in front of twenty thousand people, and it was just such a blessing because most high school kids don't ever get to play in front of twenty thousand if you played four years, and I got to do that in one weekend. So it was very special. This is going to be a weird question to a answer, but I got to ask it. You were a folk hero before you ever stepped foot into Bloomington. You you had built up a, a bit of a legend because of what you did on the high school scene. You never scored less than 20 points in any game your last two years in high school. Did you have any sense of what you meant to the state before you came to Indiana? Or were, did, were you able to just kind of laser focus on getting better? What was it like, basically, to be Steve Alford coming into Bloomington? In 1983. Yeah, I think I give Newcastle a lot of credit for that because uh, the people that I was with was with my friends or whether it was teachers or administrators at the high school or just friends of the family. Um, as I look back, they did an incredible job of not making me feel like that. Uh, they, they kept me grounded. They understood the work that I had to continue to put in, whether it was the classroom whether it was just maturing as a young young man, whether it was working on my game every day, uh, Newcastle was a incredible community that kept me grounded and kept me appreciative of being a blue collar town that just you had to work for everything. And obviously, the Chrysler plant there in town had a lot to do with that mindset. So, you know, and then I think once I lost uh, and my career was over at Newcastle, uh, mom and dad did a really good job of. Uh, getting me focused right away. We lost in March, and Dad said, "Hey, we got to start tomorrow. You got till August until you got to report to Indiana, and we got to get busy." 
and because your workouts have got to change and they they've got to now you've got to get ready for what Indiana is going to be like so you know I think being in a community like Newcastle and then having a, a set of parents like I had and mom and dad they they all hand in hand did a phenomenal job of one keeping me grounded when those things hit me at a very early age and yet um, doing a really good job of preparing me for the future that was waiting in Bloomington and then and I think you know I had a church I had a uh, faith and I think that helped me more, more than anything. Now you speak of the community and your family. What did it mean to them for you to win Mr. Basketball? You'd probably have to ask them. I, I mean, I'm sure very proud parents and a uh, very proud community uh, for sure. Kent Benson was a Mr. Basketball in the city. And uh, so now years later down the road that I was able to do that and uh, and I know what it means. And I think, again, the Indiana All-Stars helped prepare me for Indiana as well because it's much different than what it is now. And back in the day, uh, you wore that number one uniform and you got to do it for two weeks. And you literally practiced for one week to play Kentucky and then you pl- practiced for another week and you played Kentucky again. Uh, and it was a two-week ordeal. Now it's basically a two-day deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's... It's drastically changed, um, and it's more class-driven than it is, hey, these are the 12 best players in the state. And so it's a, it's a totally different thing, and I, and I had incredible teammates. When I look at those teammates, Craig Neal, who's on my staff, we're getting ready to start our 11th year together as coaches, and he played at Georgia Tech, and he was on that team. James Blackman was on that team, uh, Chad, you know, Chad Tucker, and – uh, the, the list just goes on and on of the incredible players, Scotty Hicks. And um, it, it's just an incredible group that I got to be around for two weeks. And you got a good taste of what college was going to be like just um, with being around those guys. So you have all that preparation. You've committed to Coach Knight and in Indiana. You get to campus. You're a coach's son. You know what hard work is all about. But then you get to be in a coach night practice. We always hear about the difference between the high school level and the college level. Tell us the difference between practices that you knew and then playing for coach night and what your first practices were like. Yeah, and I give coach a, a great deal of credit. Uh, that was um, that was an era, again, a little different than what we're in now where you don't have contact with coaches. So I didn't get on campus until August and really could not have contact with the coaches until practice started on the 15th of October. Everything was basically done with our trainer, Tim Garl, and your conditioning. We had no strength coach back then, so you kind of lifted weights on your own and uh, as a team really not knowing what you're doing. Um, <laughs> but Tim kind of ran the conditioning side of it, and we played pickup, um, and I did individual workouts. But So Coach Knight wasn't – I was a month and a half in there were almost two months before you really on the court with um, the guy you were going to play with just because of the rules. And I can remember if it wasn't the 15th, it was definitely the 16th or 17th. One of the very early practices were shooting free throws and he came up behind me and I can remember him saying, so you're Mr. Basketball. (laughs) (laughs) I, I kind of laughed a little bit and I said, yeah, I guess. And, he hit me on the back of his head, back of my head with one of those championship rings that he always wore. <laughs> it rang a little bit, and he said, well, 
just so you know, I've coached a lot of those and I'll coach many more after this. So let's focus. <laughs> what do. And so I think it was a, it was just a great message on, I really don't care what you've done in high school. This is a different level. You've got to focus on getting better every day and doing it at a higher level. And I think he gave me great, great perspective right from day one. Now, the, the team had just lost Randy Whitman, Ted Kitchell, a lot of the great guys from the 81 championship team, and it's kind of a changing of the guard. How were you able to earn the trust of Coach so quickly that you were very soon inserted into the starting lineup and off and running? Yeah, again, my dad helped really prepare me for Indiana. Uh, all the times that we came down to Bloomington to watch practice, he would, I think once a year, we Coach would invite our team down to practice and dad would always do that whether he was at martinsville or or newcastle so i was around a lot of indiana practices probably more than any other individual that was recruited there so i saw a lot of practices i saw a lot of games uh, i watched every single game on tv i watched every single coach night tv show um and my dad being my coach was he was very very hard on me he was difficult and tough on me and I think he he gave me a blueprint of how to become a better player each and every year not just to be a good player but to try to be one of those special players you had to really understand the game and so I think I had a pretty good understanding even though it might have been a different level and a different system I could pick up things pretty quickly just because I was a coach's kid and I was taught very very well um, and then I was just fortunate. I, I got down there. I was with a really good recruiting class, Marty Simmons, Daryl Thomas, Todd Meyer, myself. It was a very good recruiting class. And, and we weren't supposed to do much that year because, uh, as you were mentioning, it was a rebuild year almost because of all the great players that had left the year before. So there wasn't a lot of, I think, outside expectation. But, again, it's Indiana, so there's always expectations. But we were just a team that really – really bonded, really had some good freshmen that were helping the upperclassmen and upperclassmen that might not have got a lot of playing time early on. Now they were playing, and it ended up being a, an outstanding year going to the Elite Eight. So before we get into the, the game that got you to the Elite Eight, I want to just ask you to give us a little taste of a couple of your teammates. Specifically, we want to know your take when you first met Uwe Blob and also when you met Dan Dockich. Well, those guys were roommates, and they were juniors, uh, so they were upperclassmen, um, and they were going to play a much much bigger role um, than what they had played in the year before. So um, I really looked to those guys because they knew, and they did a great job, both of them uh, probably closer to Dan just because he was a guard, and Uwe was usually at the other end being a scene, uh, center. But those guys, I think, did a really good job that my first year of just being good leaders and helping uh, helping the guys under the young guys know what to expect um, because it is different. One, it's different playing for Coach Knight, uh, but it's different playing in the Big Ten and playing the schedule that we were going to have to play. So um, I thought those guys did a really good job of helping the young guys understand that. There, there comes a time uh, for many players that go from high school to college where they start talking about how the game starts to slow down for them a little bit and they, they really get their feet under them. I, I, there's only so much you can tell from looking at box scores and statistics. I did notice that 
You guys played in that in your freshman year, Illinois, who's ranked number nine in the country, and you go off for 29 points in really one of your first big breakout games from a scoring perspective at Indiana. Was there a point in your freshman year where you felt things kind of come together for you? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if it was a certain game. Um, I Looking, I'd have to reflect back. I think I was pretty consistent uh, in my first year. I, don't, I can't remember. I led the country at the foul line either my first or second year. I thought it was my first, first year. year. So first year. First year you did. I kind of just, once I got the opportunity to start and play a vital role about three games in, I, I just think I tried to learn as much as I could and work as hard as I could in practice. I don't know if it was really one game. Uh, I think it was just getting more familiar with what coach wanted to do and, and what he expected of us and just learning that system. Well, you, you guys have a, a surprisingly good regular season. You finished 20 and eight, 13 and five in conference, kind of underrated in the rankings all year, but you do get a number four seed, take care of business against Richmond. And then you're going up against the juggernaut that is early eighties, mid eighties, North Carolina, what do you remember about that game in the Sweet 16 and how you guys ended up pulling it off against such an incredibly talented team? Well, it was an incredibly talented team. I think it, a lot of that credit, majority of that credit goes to Coach and, and what he wanted to do in that game. I can remember um, him saying right from the beginning, we're going to attack the press and we're going to look to score. And we're not going to slow the game up. We're going to attack that press to get good shots. And if you watch that game film, we really hurt their press. And we got a lot of good shots. Stu Robinson was incredible breaking the press. And I was fortunate enough to just be hanging out at the other end and catch and shoot, which that, that was my forte. So we were able to score points against them. And then to get Jordan in a little bit of foul trouble in the first half uh, to where he had to sit some. Um, that always helps when you don't have a guy like that on the court. Um, I'd much rather him be sitting next to Coach Smith than, um, <laughs> than out on the court. But it was just one of those things where everything clicked for us. We defended pretty well in that game, and um, and we obviously were able to score attacking that press, and that helped. Well, wait a minute, though. Coach Dockich told us he shut down Jordan. So did he shut down Michael Jordan? Just give <laughs> What is your take well, on that? Settle it I, once I, and I for all. I would be the last guy that wants to rain on on Doc's parade of <laughs> defending uh, defending Michael, but uh, obviously he did do uh, an incredible job in that game. Uh, I think Dan would be the first to tell you that in any kind of coach night system, it's it's all set up uh, five guys, but he did get that assignment, and I think that's what made Dan, you know, special for that team and his career at Indiana was that. Um, he was unselfish and he, he would take on, he would take on different kinds of challenges that way, whether it was, Hey, I got to get eight assists in this game, or I got to go lock somebody up, or I got to get a rebound. Dan was one of those guys that when you played pickup, you always wanted him on your team. You didn't want to play against him. And that's, to me, that's always a great trait of a player. And, uh, obviously he did a great job of defending Michael in that game and, uh, had a lot to do with us being successful in that game. And wasn't he also very instrumental in just being the the general on the floor as far as what you guys were doing in a flow on the offense? Like he, even though he didn't rack it up in the box score, that he really let you guys know what you were supposed to be doing out there? 
Oh, there's no question. Um, you know, he was like a coach on the court because in later he would obviously be a very good coach and coaching the game a long time. And now obviously doing the commentating that he does, he gets to talk about the game too. So um, Dan was one of those guys we always go to of trying to understand what coach wanted uh, and how he wanted to get it done. So, you know, I thought that was a, a big trait was Dan's toughness and Dan's basketball IQ. I think those were the two things that he had that were really, really good. Well, even though Coach Dockage gets all the credit for shutting down Michael Jordan, you did go off for 27 points, six rebounds, three assists in that game. You upset the number one team in the country, sets up an Elite Eight game against Virginia, who had a pretty good player of their own by the name of Ralph Sampson. And you go from kind of the highest of the highs in upsetting a team to then people thinking, wow, Indiana's going to make the Final Four again. It's back to the success of the 81 team now. And you lose that game by two points. What do you remember just kind of taking from 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 that loss into uh, the next, into the offseason, which turns out to be a pretty momentous offseason for you as well? Well, it was just an ugly game. It was a game in the 50s and uh, very slow and just ugly and, um, you got to give Virginia credit. They made it ugly, and they did a really good job of taking the things away that we like to do. And, and I think as a young team that wasn't very experienced, uh, we probably didn't handle all the attention that was given to us after we upset North Carolina. Um, not saying we looked past anybody, um, but we obviously didn't play the game against Virginia like we played against North Carolina. And uh, every time I – talk to Jordan about this he always makes that comment to me is that yeah you beat us and then you lose to a team, the team that finished seventh in our league and so <laughs> I wish we would have able to have gotten to Seattle because uh we were so close at that point of getting to Seattle and it's a good lesson for a lot of young players now that I coach is that we were 40 minutes from the final four and we didn't stiff the final four for another three years it's it's just uh it's hard to get to that point and when you get to that point the most out of so it's summertime and normally the summertime maybe you can take your foot off the gas a little or just focus on how you want to develop your game for the next season but you jump right into preparing and then playing in the 1984 summer olympics can you take us through how you were invited to the tryouts and how the tryouts went and how you found yourself on this incredible team yeah, it was one of the neatest things that happened to me. I, I was living in Reed dorm at the time, and I'd go to my mailbox every day, and I'd, it would only be a letter from my mom. I, it's the only <laughs> time that, that I got in the mailbox to get anything, but this particular time was a letter um, from the United States Basketball Olympic Committee, and I can remember opening that letter and seeing how I was one of 77 invites and I knew with coach Knight being the the coach it was going to be everything was going to be done in Bloomington and so the irony behind all of it was that as a third grader I was uh I was at basketball camp in the field house and that's connected to assembly hall and now here after my freshman year as a 19 year old I'm going to try out for the Olympics in the same gym and so I was there was no other Indiana invite. Delray Brooks was a high school kid who was coming in, who was invited, uh, but he hadn't been to as many camps as I'd been. So I looked at it as there's 77 guys in this thing. And, the, and when you start looking at the people that were invited, it was pretty amazing. But I looked at it as, as the, I knew that gym 
because from third grade to 12th grade, hmm. you know, I was at summer basketball camp and I knew what that floor was like. Uh, I, I knew what it was like to play in that, that area. And though I was probably scared to death when the trials opened, I was very confident in that I was in a place that I was comfortable from. And how did you, when you actually made the team, did Coach Knight communicate that to you, that you'd made the final team? Did you have a good sense you were going to make it? And what was that feeling like when you actually officially are on the Olympic team? Um, I'm not sure I remember exactly how that went down, other than I think guys just started to disappear. And, <laughs> you, and you go from meeting to meeting, and it's kind of like the NBA, you know, the you find out who gets cut. I was cut twice. So you find out who gets cut by guys that don't show up to the next meeting. And, you know, all of a sudden you look around and there's 12. And so you, you understand that, you know, something special just happened. And I, I think it was the deal where I was very fortunate in that I sometimes in trials and tryouts, you play well, sometimes you don't. And I, obviously as a 19 year old, I was going to have to play well. And, Fortunately, during the trials, I played extremely well. I shot it. Uh, it was an era in the 80s where a lot of foreign teams were playing zone. Mm. So there was there was um, a high premium on shooting in the 80s that I think uh, the coaching staff there, and you look at that coaching staff of Don Donaher, Sam Newton, George Raveling, and obviously Coach, um, I think my ability to shoot the ball and then my ability to help everybody else on the team of – hey, this is what Coach Knight expects. This is what it's going to be like playing for Coach Knight. I, I think um, those things helped me make that team. So that team includes Michael Jordan, Patrick Ewing, Sam Perkins, Chris Mullen, Wayman Tisdale. It's, it's an incredible roster, and it's time to go start playing in the Olympics with USA across your chest. What did Coach say or impart to you guys about how important was for him and it should be for all of you to represent your country on the world stage? Yeah, I think he probably spent more time than that, uh, just like he did at Indiana, what it was like to play with Indiana across your chest. Um, it was the same way in the Olympics that, you know, and you look at those uniforms, it was the same way. It, was, it wasn't anything about a name on the back. It was about what was on the front. And that was what was eerie for me is that I went from being Mr. Basketball representing the state of Indiana in one year to represent an entire country and wearing USA on New Jersey. So he's always done a really good job of making it about a team, making it about it's a bigger cause than you. Um, and I think he did a phenomenal job when you take all the characters and personalities and different guys that have been coached a different way and in a three-month frame – molding that into the team that it was because it was a team that not only did we not lose in the Olympics, we played seven all-star games against NBA talent. We never lost any of those teams either. <laughs> so Steve, you've got such a unique perspective here that we have to just take a moment to ask. Obviously at this stage, Michael Jordan wasn't what Michael Jordan is now, but he was well on his way back to back national player of the year in college. You did have some leverage on him because you guys did beat him in the Sweet 16. Ended his career. But that's true. But what was it like to play with Michael Jordan? Give us a, a firsthand account of, of how good he was and what is maybe something that fans don't necessarily know about Michael that you got to see in practice or in the locker room? Well, I think the fans probably know it now, but it was just 
I had a eyewitness to it, uh, not just hearsay or today's world of social media. Um, it, it, it wasn't just hearsay, it was facts. Nobody worked harder at his game. Nobody uh, competed any harder than he did, and he just happened to be the most athletic of anybody on the team as well. So when you put all those things together, you have the makings of what would end up being Air Jordan. He wasn't Air Jordan in the Olympics yet. Uh, I wish I'd have known that. I'd have gotten <laughs> about six pairs of his shoes autographed. <laughs> uh, it'd been a good retirement gift for yeah. me. But uh, but uh, he just did things. He had a incredible will to compete and win, and he had this desire to get better. And I always tell players this that. I can remember him challenging Chris Mullen and I after every practice. He would just want to shoot and do shooting games with Mully and I. And obviously, Mully and I were probably uh, two of the better shooters um, on the team at that time. And that's all he wanted to do. And I, to this day, I wish I would have had the mindset, no, 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 I don't want to shoot. I want to play you one-on-one. Mm. And that would have helped me get better uh, if I was playing him one-on-one instead of being in shooting games with him after practice. But he knew shooting was going to take him to another level because uh, he was a good shooter. He wasn't a great shooter yet. And I think I, as I look at Michael's career from just the Olympics, college through the Olympics, through his first four years with the Bulls, the thing that really improved year to year with him with his shooting. And I think that that's why he became the best ever to play the game. But uh, his will to win and his will to get better was as good as anybody. He is also known for being one of the best trash talkers of all time and loved to talk trash. In practice, did you ever get be on the, the wrong side of some trash talking from Michael? And did you ever throw back, hey man, sweet 16? 1984. What's up? No, no, I stayed. I tried to stay away from that. We had enough guys uh, on the team that he he knew a little bit better from Sam to Patrick to, you know, his days of just competing with Chris and those guys. I let I I was the 19 year old. I just I kind of just stayed back and I spoke when they wanted me to they wanted me to speak. But uh, I can remember one practice in assembly hall, though, we'd had three really good practices in a row and Vern Fleming comes up to me who later had a great career, including a long stint with the Pacers. Oh yeah. Uh, Vern says, Steve, what are we going to do today? I mean, he's got to be happy. What's he going to do? And I said, well, I, I, I could see us doing maybe a drill. I don't think we'll do more than one drill, but if anything, it'll be two drills, but I'm betting on one drill. And then I think he's going to kick us out. And Vern says, why would he kick us out? We've had three incredible practices. And I said, because coach is not just going to give us a day off. He's going to give us a day off physically, but mentally he wants us thinking he's upset. <laughs> so that in our day off, um, we're challenging ourselves mentally to get better. And two, we go out there and to a T, we run, run, we run one drill and coach goes, Coach goes crazy and kicks us out. <laughs> and I'll never, I'll never forget Vern Fleming looking at me like he had seen a ghost. And we get in the locker room and everybody starts untying their stuff. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Don't, don't move. You guys got to just sit right there. Wait, coach will come in. And after he dismisses us, you know, then you can get, you know, get undressed and do all that kind of stuff. But just sit in your lockers. Don't move. And 
I'm saying all this, and I look at Vern, and he's just staring at me. Like, <laughs> you can't be this. You can't be serious that you called this a tee. And, and we waited for Coach to come in and challenge us mentally, and then that was our day off. You guys bring home the gold. You you take down Uwe Blob and the West German team. You take down Spain. You're out there making huge kin- contributions with with all these future Hall of Famers, and then you get your gold medal. And I'd like you to to tell us who you gave your gold medal to and why. Yeah, it was just that was a very special time uh, in my life, and uh, one of the obviously not knowing what my career was going to look like at that time. But now, 55 years of age, and looking back at my playing career, and you know, one of the more special things that I can look back on is being a starter uh, in the gold medal game against Spain because um, to be on that team and make that team was one thing but to actually be a starter in a gold medal game was something I'll never forget and then to be able to win a gold medal and stand on that top stage and have the national anthem played um, is a, a feeling that you just can't explain it's just it's beyond what your imagination could be of what just sitting there listening to your national anthem and the emotion that comes over you when you know you're representing your entire country um and then obviously it was just one year prior where i'd lost the semi state final so i didn't win a i didn't win a state championship for my dad and so when i got back that's one of the things i did was present him uh the gold medal in a sold out newcastle chrysler high school field house it was amazing to the the homecoming that I got, uh, we drove cross country because my mom and dad were out there and Tanya was out there. And we actually, uh, my mom and dad and brother, uh, we all drove back from L.A. And um, that homecoming from the exit of 70 and State Road 3 all the way to my house and then to Newcastle Fieldhouse was something I'll never forget. To, to put a pin in the Olympic experience, because I know you are too humble and too team first to do it. But like you said, you weren't just on the team. You didn't just start. I just want to put a couple stats that maybe you don't even haven't even thought about. Only five Hoosiers in the history of Indiana University basketball have ever played for the U.S. Olympic team. Only five. You are one of the five. You scored in double digits. You averaged double digits in the Olympic run. Only Michael Jordan, Patrick Ewing, and Chris Mullen we're the only other three players on the team to average double figures. You averaged 10.3 points a game. You outscored Michael Jordan in two of your Olympic games, which I just have to point out. And in the gold medal game, you scored 10 points. I mean, just like if that was all your career, it would be enough. But it wasn't. And now you enter into your sophomore year at Indiana, whereas you know, especially coming after that freshman year and an Olympic gold medal, well, not just you won it, but Coach Knight won it expectations are clearly very high. Most of the team comes back and joining the team are Winston Morgan, who was injured the year before. So he's back. And this incredible hyped recruit Delray Brooks joins the team. And the season starts with an opening game against a rival Louisville at assembly hall. And that game does not go the way anybody wants Indiana turns the ball over 25 times and we lose the game. What do you remember just from the end of the Olympics to now starting your sophomore year? What were you expecting heading into that year? Yeah, again, I think just mentally uh, a little wore down, but I think by the time the season started, um, I was fine. And we actually, if I remember 
we started that season pretty well. You did. Um, I think through 11, 12 games, um, we may have only lost one or two games. Including 3-1 uh, and one in the Big Ten. You yeah, started 3-1. Yeah. Nine so and- we, we started extremely well, and then we lost Mike Giomi. Um, and that was a huge departure. Um, losing Giomi and losing him at the time that we lost him was a 6'10 kid that uh, was a power forward that could run the floor, could score, could rebound. I think he was our lean rebounder at the time. Um, and so I think that drastically changed things for us because our lineups changed and people defended me differently as well. I, all of a sudden I was getting power forwards guarding me, guys that were 6'7", 6'8", and I didn't handle that very well. It was an eye-opening experience for me because I'd never had to really play against that kind of length and size before. It was usually a guard guarding me. So it was a good learning experience for me. And so we had a very rough Big Ten from that fourth game on. Um, and then we kind of hit stride late and made a good run uh, in the NIT before losing to UCLA. We have to ask about one game. I know you get, you've been asked about it a thousand times. So, so maybe is there something different we can learn from your point of view about the chair toss that hasn't been just talked about to death by a thousand other people? <laughs> no, I, I just, as you get older, you review it back and you hear by stories. And I, I guess when it happened, I had no idea that I was to blame, um, you know, that it was my loose ball <laughs> and it was a foul that was called on me. And had I just got that loose ball, and there would have been no excuse or anything else. The chair probably would never have got thrown. And uh, who knows, maybe we go on to beat Purdue that day. But, uh, you know, so I, I, I guess I'm the one that takes responsibility for that because <laughs> I, I did not get that loose ball, uh, regardless of whether coach or anybody else thought I got fouled, um, if I just got that loose ball. But uh, I was just at the timeline uh, when the chair got tossed and um, – you know, I knew I, I wasn't so worried about uh, when you're a player there, you're not worried about the chair being tossed. You're, you're only worried about if we lose this game, what the locker room is going to be like. And, <laughs> what so was it like? That, that was probably going through my mind more than anything else. Uh, it's a good time to talk about something because I love what you, the story you told about the Olympics where coach was always thinking, all right, clearly – there's not a lot I can do to get these guys more physically prepared. They're great. We're doing great. But I am going to work the mental game. We always like to ask people that played for Coach Knight. We've been fortunate to talk to people from Steve Downing all the way through Calbert uh, and Kirk Haston, even, who are on some of Coach's last teams. In your opinion, and you have such a unique perspective on this, what is the, kind of the one thing that separated Coach Knight from just everybody else who has ever done what he's done in the game? That he always talked about the mental to the physical as four to one. And it wasn't just something, it wasn't a sign in the locker room. It wasn't a, it wasn't just something you saw every day. He, he taught it and he emphasized it every day. Uh, whether it was a film session, whether it was a drill we were running, um, whether it was a road trip that we were on, uh, we were always challenged mentally four times more than the physical. And I'm here to tell you, the physical in Coach Knight's program is hard. So you can imagine, you can imagine what the the mental side of it is, and I think that's why you look at his teams and the consistency of what he had, even when the talent might have been a little less one year from the next, or 
or whatever, he still was very consistent as winning because his teams were so hard to play against because they were so mentally tough. Um, and I think that's probably the thing that tr- I would say drove Coach the craziest if he had a player that wasn't tough mentally. He mm-hmm. always wanted the tough mental more than the talent. And I think that was his greatest attribute and strength is that he didn't just put a sign up or it was the first meeting of the season. It was day to day to day challenging you mentally. Um, and I think I, I think I developed into a very consistent score at Indiana um, because of how he coached me. I, he was probably – the hardest on me the next day in practice after one of my better games. And I appreciate that. I might not have at the given moment, but I appreciate that because he got me refocused on what the next game was going to have meaning to. So to dive into just a little piece of minutia that always fascinated me, that year you ended the year, even though it was a difficult year, you did go to the championship game of the NIT where you ironically lose to UCLA and Reggie Miller, who is an interesting uh, person in the in the path of Steve Alford, as we can talk about maybe at the end of your college career. But at the end of that uh, Big Ten season, you hit a couple free throws in the last game to end the Big Ten season shooting 93.5% from the free throw line. That's not a typo. No, 93.5%. But it is what uh, spurs me to ask. We all know socks, shorts, one, one two, two, three. Where did that come from? Uh, and, and how did you come up with that? Well, don't forget the most important part. It, swish. It always ends with swish. So the, Fair enough. Chant, Fair enough. The, the chant might have been socks, shorts, one, two, three, but the swish part was the most important part to me. I, I didn't I, – it was really the Assembly Hall crowd that came up with the chant and, you know, those type of things. In fact, I think it kind of bothered Coach because he thought it, it bothered me, but – um, it didn't end up bothering me, and I think he would be the first to tell you that that was part of my toughness that I had, that I could block all that stuff out because there was nothing nothing more important to me than the free throw line. I, I missed I missed two free throws in a row uh, at Anderson my senior year in high school. Uh, I got fouled with four seconds to go in the game, and I, it's a two-shot foul. And I missed two in a row, and that was the, the year I shot, I think, nine four four from the line as a senior year in high school. And I missed two free throws, and it cost us the conference championship in the wigwam in Anderson. Wow. And I can remember being just – you can't imagine how upset I was after the game. And when we bust back to Newcastle, I stayed in the gym till probably 1, 2 o'clock in the morning just shooting free throws and we had a game the next night against Muncie North at home. And yeah, I can remember in a dark gym there in the field house, just saying, I'm never missing two free throws in a row again. I'm never going to miss two in a row again in a game and kind of made that vow. And only I knew about it. Nobody else knew about that. And it wouldn't be until new Orleans when we played UNLV in the semifinal game, uh, I literally missed two free throws in a row uh, for the first time in four years uh, in a game. Wow. Unbelievable. And I knew what that meant to me. And so I here I am in the semifinal game, of obviously the biggest game of our year, and I'm pouting like a little kid out on the court. <laughs> and I can remember Coach Knight drilling me, yelling at me, get over here. 
He goes, what is your deal? <laughs> and I go, I go, coach. I said, I apologize, but I just missed two free throws in a row. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, how can I do that? And uh, probably not for podcasts, but in his own way, you know, he told me, you know, what he thought. And he said, do you know how many free throws you've made in your career for us? Just go play. And it helped me get back to the game that I needed to do. But uh, in my own mind, I, I needed – I probably needed to be taken out just to handle missing two free throws in a row because the foul line is just something I took so much pride in. I, I want to ask you, because I'm always fascinated by this, clearly one of the things that drove you – to be as good as you were was your competitive spirit, your intensity, your work ethic. But your competitive spirit was so just white hot. You could see it when you played. Now that you're a coach and have been for a long time, does it not how, – how do you not get driven insane when you have guys who shoot 60% from the free throw line? Like, doesn't it just eat you up inside? Oh, there's no question it does. <laughs> uh, you know, and and it's – and now it's gotten easier because now at 55 and getting ready to start my 30th year as a coach, um, these guys have no clue uh, about me. They have no clue <laughs> to what I did as a player. Uh, there's not really any good film footage out there anymore of, of me playing. I, I can remember, I think this February, we had a walk-on and I, we were getting ready to start practice and I walked by him and I said something to him and and, you know, he spouted off saying, well, you wouldn't be able to do that. Oh. And I was talking about shooting. Uh-oh. And, and he, says, he says, you wouldn't be able to, to do that, coach. And I'm like, really? I said, I, so I, I remember talking to him. I said, look, there's no footage you can find. But why don't you just sit there? You got your phone right there. We haven't started stretching. Why don't you just Google my name and shoot me and see what you get? And so he at least he at least got a good feel of, oh, coach, I had no idea. And I'm like, and I'm like, that tells you how old I'm getting. Right. It, it, uh, oh, so that's man. helped that's helped with teaching guys how to shoot free throws and those types. But free throws has a lot to do with mechanics, and then it has to do with just your mindset. And you know, it's over the years we probably been better foul shooting than most um but you're right when i have a player that struggles with it it does drive you crazy well you talked about your ability to block out the noise and focus and how important was that skill set for you and the whole team when going into your junior year this little book called season on the brink comes out and all the chaos and aftermath around the program that ensued. Was that something you guys got at all overwhelmed by, or was Coach and your own mental focus able to keep that noise outside of Assembly Hall? No, I think I give uh, Todd Myers, a dear friend of mine, and he was obviously a classmate of mine and captain of the 87 team. And uh, I give him a lot of credit because he was the guy that first got the book. And, and <laughs> Coach would never – if Coach knew all this, he'd get gone crazy at the time. But Todd would always be the guy that would just start laughing, and we wouldn't know what he's laughing about. And then he'd show us excerpts in the book of "Look, look, look at this part! Look at this part! Look at this part!" And so it was really, as I remember it as a player, the book was the book was more of a comic relief to the players that 
you know, hey, look, they're talking about the big wheel. And, you know, we ate, we ate the big wheel every meal, you know. <laughs> so we thought that, you know, that was crazy that we had to do that. But now here it is in book form. And, you know, there's parts in there about Damon, who was the eighth grade phenom and, uh, you know, talking about him. And so I can just remember it being more comical than it was anything else. And Todd had a lot to do with that, of just bringing humor to it. Well, there was another—I don't want to call it a book, but another publication that came out that year that that year that caused a bunch of uh, controversy, which was a certain calendar that got uh, put out by a sorority. Yeah, that you were yeah, uh, that hurt more than the book did. Yes. So <laughs> let's talk about that because in reading, when you go back and read the story of the calendar, you just shake your head and you go, "Is the NCAA this messed up?" I mean, we all know they're messed up. But when you read about this and how this could possibly have been a bad thing, it, it just boggles your mind. But walk us through uh, what you remember of that and then the very real consequence that it had for you in missing a game and a, a very specific, important game. Yeah, it, it wasn't a bad thing. Um, it's a bad, bad rule. And then it was a bad decision on mine not to carry forth what we're taught in the IU program and in Coach Knight's program that if you do anything you've got to get it you got to get it cleared and that was my mistake I, I had the sorority that was doing this and it was a charitable deal for basically um, girls that could not afford to go to camps um, it was to raise money for handicapped and girls that weren't able to go to camps and so they told me about hey, baseball's got this month, football's got this month, track and field's got this month, and we want you to have this month. And instead of, you know, truly taking it up the line of command and checking on it, I just assumed that, you know, the sorority had done that and the people involved had done that. And then when it came out um, differently, then, you know, obviously I knew I'd made a mistake. And the sad thing is I, I don't even think it hit the – the stands, there might have been a few sold, but most of them didn't even hit the stands. Um, it's just not a good rule. And then the next year, the rule changed. But um, it, it was wrong on my part. I did a bad job of checking into it. And then it cost it cost me a chance to play at Kentucky, which obviously I love playing at Kentucky. And I didn't get that opportunity to do that that year. Can you talk about how that went down when you went to, to get on the bus and, and – Coach Dockett's advice at that point and how Coach Knight gave you the news you weren't getting on the bus? Yeah, well, Dan and I, we I always kid Dan about that because Dan's the one guy I went to. I'm like, Dan, what am I supposed to do? I, I'm suspended. Do you Am I supposed to get on the bus and go with the team? I, I want to show support of the team. I don't know what it – you because know, Coach didn't tell me I was going or not going. And Dan says, hey, I don't know what to tell you, but I think I'd just be, I'd be on the bus. And so I was on the bus, and Coach Will always made a point that um, as you come off the bus, he kind of hits you on the back or let's go, boy, that kind of thing. And he's doing that, so I'm just sitting there trying to get off the bus going, oh, gosh, what's this going to do with me? And it was a pat, and then it was a crap. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it was like, what are you doing here? Um, and he said, uh, you can find your own way home. And so I get off the bus and I, I see the plane, I waited and I see the plane go through the overcast skies of Bloomington and disappear. And I just start walking oh, and, man. and it's, uh, and if you know where that airport is, it's out in the middle of nowhere yeah. and I'll never forget it. It gets funnier by the day, but I'll never forget the bus driver, um, 
he passes me about a half mile up. He pulls up alongside of me, opens his door and goes, Hey, do you need a ride? <laughs> <laughs> Just Steve Alford walking on so, the side of the road. <laughs> yeah. I said, yeah, I could use a ride. So it was just me and the bus driver for a while getting back to town. Oh man. Well, I, I have to ask as somebody who spends too much time thinking about my hair and the product and the preparation, <laughs> this, this was the, the short lived modeling career that could have been, but your hair is, is almost as famous as your free throws. How do you keep up with it these days? What kind of product do you use? Do you use a blow dryer? Give us, give us a tip. <laughs> no, no, no blow dryer, no blow dryer. Try to sometimes product just to try to keep the gray out, but I'm not winning that fight anymore. <laughs> 55, almost 56. I'm not going to win that fight anymore. Oh man. And well, I'm between the two of us, Ward's 41. He's got plenty of gray. Oh. I'm 42. I got no hair. So uh, you're doing better than both of us. Believe me. So, that season, uh, a really interesting start, and then how it finishes is is really uh, quite impressive. It actually starts with you guys losing two Big Ten games uh, at home, which means that you have now lost seven consecutive home conference games dating back to last year. And the reason I want to bring it up is because I think that in today's world, and I'm specifically uh, talking about our team, Indiana, uh, and I'm sure, Steve, you've been through this in various places, because of the, the, the one-second news cycle, everybody thinks that every loss is just the end of the world. And people think back to Coach Knight's era fondly, as they should, three national championships, countless Big Ten titles. But they think like, oh, none of we never had a losing streak when Coach Knight was there. Well, that's not true. There are losing streaks, but it's not about the streak. It's about how you respond to it. And you guys, seven consecutive losses at home, you bounce back, and you end up having an incredible junior year. Uh, what do you remember about kind of getting things on track your junior year, which really did kind of set the stage for what happened in, in your senior year? Yeah, you know, we kind of rode the ship, and we started playing pretty well and, and did some good things. and. And got to, to winning because the sophomore years where we lost the majority of those home games. And But as we finish up our junior year and obviously get upset in the first round of the tournament, you know, Daryl and Todd and I are looking at each other going, you know, there's never been a four-year player not win a Big Ten title under Coach Knight. And we'd been close, two second-place finishes, but we hadn't won a Big Ten title. So, you know, that I can just remember more than the end of the junior year. I can remember – uh, us going into the senior year, um, really preparing for what we needed to do, you know. So the thing I remember most about the junior year was we lost to Cleveland State, and then we came home back to Bloomington and practiced for two weeks. Um, <laughs> well, that's yes, that's an interesting thing when you're practicing and you know you you don't have any games for about six months. Well, you you mentioned your fellow now to be seniors, Todd Meyer and Daryl Thomas, and obviously we lost Daryl uh, way too soon. Can right. you talk a little bit about what he meant to you as both a a teammate and as a friend? Oh, D Train was the best. Um, and I can remember, you know, talking to I can even remember talking to some of the teammates about, you know, hey, I, I need coach to yell at me, not Daryl, because <laughs> Daryl was so vital to what we did. Um, but Daryl was one of those just really cool, sensitive guys that, you know, smile. He had probably the most infectious smile on our team. He was a loving kid. And 
I can remember telling the assistants, like, look, just whatever you're upset with with Daryl, please pass on to coach to take that out on me. I, I would rather you take that on on me because I'm going to be able to handle it. I don't want Daryl going in a different direction because he's that vital to us. Mm. And he was just uh, – he was he had an incredible soul to him, and he was a great, great teammate, and he was like the unsung hero, obviously – Probably on that team in 87, you know, Keith Keith and I get a lot of credit, um, but there were so many other pieces of that team, top to bottom, that were incredible, and Daryl was one of those guys, and arguably, maybe in the history of Indiana basketball, made the greatest pass of all time, yes. and uh, I, I think Coach would be the first to tell you, because of how unselfish Coach was about his teaching, that, you know, when you can have the one of the greatest plays in Indiana basketball history being a pass, that brings a smile to Coach's face. Mm-hmm. And that was Daryl. So the year ends, like you said, with a disappointing loss to Cleveland State. Uh, and Coach clearly sees there is something missing on this team that can get you guys to really the level you all wanted to be at. Even though he has now All-American Big Ten MVP coming back, Steve Alford. That's true. But he goes out and he does something that he has done very rarely. I think at this point he only had one or, or I think maybe a second junior college player that had come and, and transferred. But he goes out and he gets Keith Smart from Louisiana and he gets Dean Garrett from out west. And they come in and obviously make an immediate impact. And we had the pleasure of talking to Dean and Keith. And the thing that they brought up to us as they got into that season is something you just mentioned. And it also, again, speaks to how Coach – assembled the right pieces, and then what he taught about selflessness. What they told us, the most important thing, and he said, and they, they credited you, Daryl, and Todd, was that we, got, we cannot have our seniors be the last group of seniors, the first group of seniors to not win a Big Ten title who stayed four years. That was two guys who had no attachment to the Indiana program coming in right. and immediately felt that. Talk to us a little bit about how special just those guys are, Dean and Keith. Well, first, I appreciate Coach and the coaching staff to go out and get older guys and because um, he has not done that. It's normally been freshmen, uh, been high school kids. And a couple of high school kids weren't going to help our team uh, get to the level we needed to get to. We needed experience. Uh, we needed athletes. Uh, we needed a good athletic guard. And we needed a, a center. Uh, we desperately needed a center so that – we didn't have to play Daryl uh, at the center position. We needed Daryl to be at the power forward position. And so those two, one, the coaches did a great job in, in seeing that and going and getting it. And then two, I can't give, I can't give Dean and, and Keith enough credit because now that I've been in coaching, I, I put puzzles together every year with rosters. And it's not easy when junior college kids come on a team and they really don't know the history. They don't know – What's ha- they don't know what it's like to be upset by Cleveland State in the the NCAA tournament. They they just they don't know. It's not their fault. They just don't know. And for those two guys to come in, be as selfless as they were, to really want the role that they were given and do it the best that they can, and then have the phenomenal years that they had. Um, there were no two guys any bigger or any more important than Keith and Dean of getting our team to that next level. And I, I just – I can't say enough about those guys. Um, I don't know if Dean – I don't know if Keith told you about his official visit, but 
Um, Please tell us. He might not have made it if if he and I wouldn't have had a discussion because he showed up on his on his visit and he's got about fifteen gold chains on and that was the <laughs> that was the era of of uh, I think I watched it the other day Rocky whatever four uh, Miss, mm-hmm, with Mister T yeah and I told Keith I said hey do you want to be here and I can remember him saying yeah I do and I go well before coach comes out on the court. Why don't you disappear and take off all those gold chains? <laughs> <laughs> and, and he disappeared, took them off, and he ends up hitting the biggest shot ever. And so <laughs> it was, uh, it, it, but it was, it was a great relationship that Dean and Keith and myself and the seniors and the team. Uh, that I think our team did a good job of embracing those two, and those two did a great job of embracing us as a team. Um, because you got to remember the. The class behind me was full redshirt. You had five, at least five guys in the class behind me that were redshirting. Wow. So, so that redshirt, their junior, my junior year. So they were all coming out of redshirt years. So it would have been easy for all of those guys to say, hey, I don't want Dean. I don't want Keith because they're going to take some of my minutes. And so I give that class that was behind me a, Joe Hillman, Brian Sloan, Cree Smith, Steve Isle, uh, Jeff Oliphant, those guys, they, they did a phenomenal job of just being, and, and they ended up playing some very key roles to that team. You know, Joe Hillman and Steve Isle uh, in particular that year uh, really had some key roles to us winning games. Crucial, crucial. Now, one part about getting these new guys acclimated to what it means to play Indiana University basketball is the the born and bred hatred of Kentucky. So you guys have a big game early on against a ranked Kentucky team. And you guys, you, you, you beat them by five. It's a pretty tight game in Bloomington. But could you talk a little bit about what the rivalry meant to you growing up and through the All-Star game and now through your Indiana career? Yeah, you just really you grew up knowing there were two colors, and, and the best color was red, and the worst color was blue. You just kind of <laughs> knew that when you grew up in Indiana, and um, that was part of the <clears throat> the pride I took in wearing the candy stripes was that um, the red and white candy stripes were just everything to me. And that's you know it's been a little frustrating over the years to see the different colors of red that Indiana's kind of messed around with but uh that being said the the red and white was something that um you took a lot of pride in but i think when you look at those two basketball schools you just got incredible tradition and history and when you're you're a border state it's not like you're clear across the country so you're a border state with two of the the winningest programs of all time um you know it's it's a very special rivalry yeah, I agree. One great basketball state and the other just a bunch of cheaters. Okay, let's move on. That's okay. Um, so another huge thing that happens for your senior year that truly changes, I, I think, the trajectory of, of the team that year. And the entire sport. Yeah, for sure. That that clearly is hitting a whole other level now and in the past few years is the addition of the three-point line. Now, you are a shooter. You've been a shooter your whole life. You are now getting to play with a three-point line, and we know publicly, at least, Coach Knight hated the three-point line. But we also know 
he loved it when you shot the three. So can you just tell us what it was like when you knew that this three-point line was going to be in college basketball? And and how did did you change your game at all to to take advantage of it? No, I didn't change my game uh, other than I wanted to listen to coach and that I didn't ever want to step on the line. I didn't want to shoot. That was 19-9. I didn't want to take a shot that was 19-8. <laughs> so I just paid attention to my pivoting and where I was on the floor, and I wanted to learn to do that without looking down. So I spent that summer you know, just spending a lot of my days shooting in the gym, was working on cutting, coming off screens or in transition or with the ball, making sure I was behind the line. That's really the only thing I did. But uh, it was funny to me because of how outspoken coach was, and I never really had any comments other than secretly I was smiling real big because <laughs> I'm like, I love this rule. You know, I, I wish I had this rule in high school and, and everything else. So I was a big, big fan of, you know, giving me an extra point for a shot. And I think when you look at the, our team, I did this, uh, I don't know, a month ago or so when the season ended, somebody asked me about it, but it was, it was weird how we didn't really take that many outside of me. No, uh, barely any. It was, it's, yeah, it's really a, you know, Keith did most of his stuff in pull-ups. We had Dean and and and, um, and uh, Daryl who did most of their stuff in the paint and off the backboard. And Ricky Calloway was a freshman scorer for us that did most of his stuff on pull-ups. Um, you know, Joe could shoot the three-point shot. Um, Steve Isle did most of his stuff going to the rim. So it was ironic or just kind of weird. And I looked at those stats that year to where it seemed like I was the only one for the most part shooting the majority of the threes and it just happened to work out well. And what's really funny when you really dive into it, and I want to ask you about this game specifically because there's a game early on at Ohio State where Keith goes off. Keith scores 31 points that game and hits a bunch of threes. I think he hit four or five threes that game. If you take that game out of it, really no one was shooting threes except for you and Hillman put up a couple. But there was, I don't know if you'll remember this, but there apparently was a play in that game, in the Ohio State game, where Keith got called for a foul on it, but jumped up for an offensive rebound to try to tip it in. And at the time, there was a story written about you kind of looking up at it and thinking, oh, my God, this guy is jumping like 10 feet in the air. Do you remember yeah. this play at all? Well, there were so many of those times with Keith because I had not played with anybody that jumped any higher on a jump shot or you know, James Blackman in high school was a friend of mine, and I thought he jumped high on his jump shot. And Keith just had this explosiveness off the ground that – and you saw it in the national title game several times in the last eight minutes. Of mm-hmm. he just jumped over people to get shots. He jumped over people to get rebounds, and um, he just had this. Not only did he jump high, but he jumped very explosive. And I think that was a call that was missed. I think it was the officials probably like me just hadn't seen anything like that. <laughs> so you guys are rolling. You'll also take down another dreaded rival in Louisville, and you get uh, to number three in the country. But you go in and on the road you have to play number one Iowa and they put up 101 which never happens under coach Knight what did you guys take from that defeat and and turn into gold with you know you wanted to finish the season number one in the country what did you learn from that game to propel you forward well I just remember not only 
it hadn't happened. It never happened. It, we were the first <laughs> coach night team to give up a hundred. So, you know, we didn't want to, I just kept going back to Daryl Todd and I, it's like, okay, we're going to be the first not to win a big 10. We're going to be the first <laughs> to give up a hundred. You know, we're going to be the first to have a th- chair thrown across the court. <laughs> so this has been more of the dialogue. So it's like, okay, this is, uh, you know, and Todd was the son of a, a minister. So it's like, we really turned it to faith base that, Hey, we're going through these trials because the good Lord's got something bigger for us. <laughs> and we, we just kept, we just kept keeping the faith and, and just plugging it. We knew it was obviously coach making a big deal out of, and he should of us giving up a hundred, but Iowa was really good. I mean, really good. In fact, that year, they had UNLV down 20 at half. We thought that was going to be the team we were playing in the semifinals. And Iowa uh, had a really bad second half, and UNLV came back and beat them. But you, Iowa was one of the better teams we played our entire senior year. They were an outstanding team. They had length, size, athleticism, could score it. They were tough. Loaded uh, with talent. Loaded with talent. Yeah. So it was, uh, you know, in our minds, yes, it was a – it was a loss. We gave up a hundred. That's what we're going to hear for the next week. But <laughs> let's let's get on to the next game. We're fine. It's our second loss of the year. You know, we're getting late into the season here, and we've only got two losses. We're we're pretty good. I, I want to ask about another game that that Dean made a point to us about that I thought was just so perfect about this team, uh, your senior year, which truly was a team. He talked about how at a certain points in that year. Everybody in the starting five hit a buzzing a buzzer beater shot. Everybody. And you had a chance to do this against a very good Michigan team with an excellent Gary Grant, uh yep. Gary Grant playing for them. It was on the road, is a difficult game. Walk us through what you remember. Gary Grant's on the free throw line. He's got two free throws uh at this point. The game is tied at this point when he goes to the free throw line with two shots. Walk us through what you remember. Well, first, um, I, I respect all the guys that played against me, but nobody probably any more than Gary Grant. He was a year behind me, and it took me uh, the better part of two years to figure out how to score on Gary. And if Gary knew how much film I watched on him and how much I really dove into, uh, look, I'm going to have to do this, this, and this against this guy. I can't just show up and do my own thing here because – this guy really understands how to guard. Um, he was long, he was athletic, big hands, uh, and had a great demeanor to him. He just loved to play defense. And I don't think in my career, and people ask me who's the hardest guy to ever guard you, um, Gary Grant's the first guy that, that I bring up and mention. I, I think he was that good. But but the, the fun part about that game was it's at Michigan. Yeah. And again, I go back to – there was back in that time of my life, there was only two colors, red and blue. Mm-hmm. And um, I just, I can remember, you just always remember it. And then I coached at Iowa for eight years. So I had to go back in there. And um, then we've had home and homes with the, with teams in the past. You, you'll never forget that theme song and the uh, bump, bump, bump you got to listen to from Michigan. Yeah. And so to have that opportunity, um, to Daryl throw me the ball off a missed free throw and I get to go the length of the court and basically get a walk off. Um, 
it's a tremendous feeling. It's uh, and then to see Coach Knight's reaction yes. was probably yes. the thing that I I liked the most. I mean, he did. He jumped and danced and twisted. He was doing and, knee highs. I mean, what in the world? <laughs> and what what's really great about it is you say it's a walk off. It wasn't really a walk off. Walk back yeah. on. <laughs> we had to come back out. There yeah. is a great. I don't know if you've watched this clip lately, Steve. It's worth watching on YouTube because there's a moment. At the end of Coach Knight's just ridiculous dance going off the court, which is phenomenal, where he is walking off. And you can tell some of the players on your team walking off know something is still going on. Coach yeah. Knight, right before he exits the uh, the the vision of the camera. He's in the tunnel. He's in the tunnel. He looks back and clearly sees that there's more time, that they're going to do it. And he doesn't give a damn. He just walks, runs right into the locker room. It's so good. Yeah. I know Brian Sloan. I know Brian Sloan knew we had to go back out, but I was going to let Brian tell Coach. I wasn't telling him. So, uh, we had to go back out and finish that one second. But that's actually kind of cool, too, that you get to go back out to – Chrysler Arena when you know, okay, you got one second. What are you going to do? And yeah. then you you win. It's funny because the one second took forever because Michigan throws it the length of the court. It goes out of bounds. So you right. have to inbound it from back on the other side of the court. You inbound it. And then Coach Knight like turns to the crowd and talks trash to him. <laughs> it is the best. It is the There is nothing better than beating a rival on the road, right? I mean, that right. is the no, best. It's it's very good. Okay. So we have to talk about one more rival, by many accounts, the rival. Very, very good Purdue team that year. And you guys are 17-2 and two at this point, and they come into Assembly Hall. Just describe to us when you guys know it's coming down to who's going to win the Big Ten, what it's like to have that Assembly Hall crowd behind you in a game like that. Well, there's nothing better, and you're right. They were really, really good, and um, we'd had wars with them in the past, and obviously the year before was the ther- chair throw, so there was a lot going into that game, to say the least, and Coach Katie, Katie is somebody that I have the utmost respect for, and I just think is a great man, great coach, and um, of all the teams I played in the Big Ten um, in my four years, um, those were the best teams, and, and there were a lot of good teams. Michigan had some great teams. Illinois had some great teams. Iowa had some great teams, uh, but Purdue consistently over my four years, um, those were the best teams we played against in the Big Ten. So as we get into the home stretch here, um, a couple of tough losses then right at the end of the season on the road to that same terrible Purdue team they were really good but they're just terrible (laughs) always and then the Illinois team you mentioned so now it's senior night it's Ohio State coaches alma mater you know to to get at least get a share of the Big Ten title you better win this thing what was that last game like in Assembly Hall with all the chips on the table and also Steve knowing that 10 year old Eric Pankowski from St. Louis was driven there by his parents to be there for this game his first Indiana (laughs) University Hoosiers basketball game no, no additional yeah. pressure, but I'm sure that weighed on you guys. Yeah, there was a lot of pressure on this game um, because we had just lost. We knew in that last road trip, had we beaten Purdue or Illinois on the road, we would have clinched a share of the Big Ten title. And by losing those two games, now we'd lost. We'd only lost three Big Ten games and four for the season. Um, it wasn't about getting in the NCAA tournament. It was about winning a Big Ten championship. But, and now we're down to our last game, and now we got to get help. Uh, we have to beat Ohio State, who's really good. 
Dennis Hobson was a prolific player uh, for Ohio State and a very good team. We had to beat them at home, and we had to hope that Purdue lost at Michigan. Uh, so we had to get help to get a share of the Big Ten title. And so there was a ton riding on that, and I can just remember – you know, going through that game, how hard fought it was. It was close. It really didn't – you didn't have an outcome until the last four minutes of that game. And uh, so that was nail-biting to begin with. And then to have to take the mic afterwards, and I can remember, you know, for the first time in my life ever saying, let's go blue. Um, <laughs> I, we, though we had the whole assembly hall rooting for, for Michigan. And we, we had no idea that how important that was. Not only did it give us – a share of a Big Ten title, but it also allowed us to have the number one seed and stay close to home, Indianapolis and Cincinnati, on our path to the Final Four. Exactly. And now you win the Big Ten championship. Blue did their job. You've got the, you 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 have exercised the demon of being the first four year player that has not won. And now it's time to make a run to really put yourself in that conversation of of legacy and all time great teams and. Fairfield, obviously, plays the number one seed. You you go through them. Ward and I have talked about this second-round game a couple times on this podcast because I've gone back and watched it recently. I tell everybody, it is one of the most entertaining Indiana basketball games I've ever seen because Auburn was big, athletic, and tough, and they came out in Indianapolis and smacked you in the mouth. And, and then the tide turns, and you could see an edge – on you, you could see it. There were there was trash talking going on. There was yeah. some, a little bit of scuffles. What do you remember about that game? Yeah, I, I just remember Auburn talking a bunch of junk, and so <laughs> and they did get out for a, a really good stretch. And then I remember a, a, the first time out, coach called. He really snapped us into place. But I, I think more than anything, winning a share of the Big Ten title, it because you've already interviewed Keith and Dean, so they've talked about it. Yeah. But. Um, that whole team, and I think it was it was a close knit team. They wanted all of them wanted to win that Big Ten championship, and once we did that, our team could relax. Our team, we didn't feel the pressure. We didn't feel, and I think if you look at the numbers, you know what we. I think we shot over fifty percent that year in the mm-hmm. six games, um, and we're playing very good defensive teams like LSU, like Duke. Um, you know, so. We did a really good job of shooting and scoring the basketball in those six games, and I think a lot of it had to do with the pressure was off of us. And I can remember beating Auburn and being interviewed on CBS with Coach, and I remember him looking at me saying, "What do you think?" And I said, "I literally think we can win this whole thing." And I <laughs> sprinted off the court, and I think it was just the confidence that we'd played the whole year, we played a great schedule, we were in a great league, and just won that league playing against really good teams. I, I felt like we were as good as anybody. Um, and when, when we left there, I just, I just think that Ohio state win and getting a piece of it was able to get a lot of us more relaxed than what we had been the last month. Well, you continue to, to roll in the tournament, a tough battle against Duke, but again, you're, you're close to home in Cincinnati, then a really tight game against LSU punches your ticket to the final four. But real quick, on that LSU game, you know about Coach Knight's great quote about Dale Brown on that game, don't you? What's that? After the game, I think in the press conference, they asked Coach if when when you guys were down nine, I think you were down nine with with less than ten minutes left in the game, maybe around seven minutes in the game. They asked Coach, when when you were down nine, were you worried? 
and coach said, I was worried we we might lose. But then I looked down on the other side and saw Dale Brown coaching and knew we had a chance. <laughs> Come yeah, on. That's, that's good that's, coach yeah. stuff. That's good coach yeah. stuff. Yeah, there's always there's always good coach stuff. <laughs> uh, I think the cool thing about the whole stretch was that the Wisconsin game, Dean had made a tip in to beat uh, to beat Wisconsin. I had had a walk off, and now in this game, you got Ricky in yeah. his hometown of Cincinnati, who catches a air ball by Daryl and puts it in to beat LSU in a game that really could have went either way. Totally. So we go to New Orleans. And it was almost, you know, it was almost to where you knew that it was going to be Keith because mm-hmm. Keith was the one guy that hadn't done it, and Keith was going home to to New Orleans. So it was, uh, you know, that was what was the cool thing about LSU. Sure. So, talk us through what it's like going back to Bloomington. You know, knowing you're going to the Final Four, and how does Coach prepare you? to be in the final four, not only going up against UNLV, which he does some some surprising things there tactically, and then also just to have you mentally prepared for the circus that is being in the final four. Yeah, and obviously New Orleans being a Mardi Gras town and, you know, kind of the Bourbon Street party mindset, um, we're at home watching TV and these teams, you know, UNLV's there on a Monday and – you know, I think Syracuse is there on, you know, Tuesday or Wednesday. And, you know, so we're watching all this. And I can remember the guy saying, hey, when we going? <laughs> <laughs> and that's just how coach was. And coach was like, you know, hey, we're, you know, the, the, our game, game's going to be on Saturday. We're going to do what we always do. We, you know, we go in when we go in. And, and I think that's the way coach just did it. And that's why he was so successful that it didn't matter if it was the hoopla of a Final Four. Uh, it was a business trip for us, and it was uh, we're going to do exactly the way we've done it all year long of how we travel, and this is no different than you know playing at you know at Northwestern in Wisconsin. It's the same trip. It's you got to go get your job done, and so he kept it very businesslike. He kept it consistent for us, and I think it kept us out of a lot of the the media attention and those type of things uh, leading into the Final Four, but. Uh, you know, I'll never forget, you know, my grandfather was still alive at the time and, you know, seeing him, you know, as we're, our bus is pulling away to play against UNLV to, you know, see him banging on the bus and acting like he was 20 years old mm-hmm. is something, uh, that's something I always remember. One of my favorite plays as a fan in the history of Indiana University, of course, is the shot. And we'll get to that in a second. But there's a play in the UNLV game that I loved and I dreamed of being able to do this because I wanted to emulate you it's when you get the ball on the right side at the three-point line you chuck the three you drill it and I think it's Wade like hits you in the stomach as you go up and they call a foul what say that again I hold up four you hold up four with both hands and walk around to meet a teammate it is the best moment. <laughs> I wanted that so bad. I wanted it so never happened for me. Yeah, never got it. It turns out the problem is you have to hit a three in order to do the four. So that never <laughs> happened for me. But I mean, do you remember that moment very clearly? Oh yeah, like yeah, like it was yesterday. Because that, uh, again, I'd only had it for one year, so it's yeah. not something like I'd practiced in high school. Um, I'd only I'd only gotten fouled X number of times. I don't know how many. If I even had a four-point play that year, I don't know. But um, I wanted – and there was a lot going on in that game. That was an athletic game. It was an up-and-down game. 
it was both teams scoring like crazy and matching one another. So, you know, it was, and, and I know the sky report on me, you know, you, you don't want to give him anything open, but the last thing you want to do is foul him. And so, you know, I, I wanted, I guess I wanted the runner rebels to know that, you know, if you're going to foul me back here, if it goes in, it's four. As, as, as you know, when you play for Indiana, you, you have an entire state that takes it very personally. You are our guy. And I remember going into that game just as a 10-year-old and all the hype about UNLV and how fast they were and how athletic they were, and they were going to take our guys out of the game like you because you didn't have the athletic ability. When you went up and scored 33 on them, it was like vindication for every single fan of Indiana basketball to say, like, we don't care who we play. We're going to beat you. We're going to beat you at what you do, which was the most fun about that game, that coach didn't slow it down. You guys beat them at their game. And it just felt – I remember to me it felt like, well, not nothing. There's no – the Syracuse game, which of course ended up being extremely difficult, to me as a fan just felt like, we got, we got this. this. We got it. We got this. And then, of yeah, course – Yeah, I think um, I think it's the genius in coach, too, that um, coach knows the Indiana – the way he knows the way he wants to play and the way he wants his teams to look. and But I think he also accepted that year. You know, you look at the 76 team, you look at who last undefeated team, one of the greatest teams of all time, the 81 team with Isaiah could score, but they were really good defensively. And our 87 team, we weren't a great defensive team. You know, we weren't bad, but we didn't – we just weren't a really, like, Coach Knight defensive team. But we were a team that could really score. And in my career, there were three games that stand out where Coach made incredible – I mean, he, he makes incredible move after incredible move, but kind of out of the box for him. We played at Notre Dame. David Rivers, couldn't, we could not guard him. And we zoned them in South Bend and beat them by zoning, which is wow. something Coach never did. Right. Um, and then we ran with UNLV. Um, people thought we'd be crazy for running with UNLV because they were the running Rebels. Uh, and then the way we played against Carolina my freshman year of against Carolina of saying this is exactly how we're going to do it and we're going to beat them doing this. And So those were just three games that I remember that were a little bit out of box and a little bit out of character of the way we normally play. So now it's time for the national championship game. What do you remember Obviously, we all know now how incredible that Syracuse team was and how many of those players went on to play at the next level. What do you remember about Coach preparing you for that? Because now you've you've got less than 48 hours to get ready to take on this team. Yeah, same prep, same film time, same everything, pregame meal, everything, everything the same. You know, and I think that, again, is what made Coach Coach. He was all about um, consistency consistency how you prepare he always talks about the the will to prepare is much greater than just preparing to win and so he was always challenging us mentally he was always challenging us of uh, this is how we get ready to play and so nothing changed you know I think what I'll remember in the locker room was there are some emotions that go through it because um, I, you know I'm I'm a traditionalist I've watched this game my entire life I've gone to you know, I, I've gone to so many games with my mom and dad and those type of things. So I know the the whole nation's watching this game because it's the championship game. And then the thoughts of, you know, I, I'm not going to put this uniform on again. And this was the uniform that I dreamt about as a young boy. And now all of a sudden 
it's the last game I'm going to put this thing on. So, you know, you get some of those emotions as you're in the locker room just waiting for the clock to get to the point where you can take the floor and get to business. Well, the game starts. It's a back-and-forth affair. But you get to business right away in the first half. Your shot is falling. You, I mean, just incredible three-point shooting again. Um, I, I want to ask this. I know, I, I know the answer to this before I even ask it because I know what kind of player you were. But going into this game, you had a chance also to become the all-time leading Big Ten scorer. Was that ever even on the radar screen for you? Did you know that going in? No. Okay. I knew the answer. I had uh, <laughs> I had no idea. The only time I had an I the only time I had idea about my scoring was just because of all the attention that was brought to it um, media wise when I was getting close to uh, breaking Don Schlunt's scoring record at Indiana, and I never thought about it. I didn't, you know, I wasn't about hey, I got to be the leading scorer at Indiana. It just kind of happened over my career, but. If you look at those two games, two of my worst shooting games of my senior year were at Northwestern and at Wisconsin, and those were the two games that all the hype was around uh, breaking the, that record. So, right. and, and I know it's because I thought about it of how, you know, here, here's just that, that little kid from Martinsville slash Newcastle. How in the world could you be at this point? And I think the, that emotion and pressure kind of overwhelmed me on that road trip. Uh, but I never, I couldn't have told you at any point during the year where I was in Big Ten scoring. Well, where we were at the end of the half was losing by two points. And then with just a couple seconds left, you get open in the corner. Hillman makes a really nice kind of behind the back pass to you. You let right. the shot go and you basically run to the locker room almost before the buzzer even goes. You knew the ball was in, right? Yeah, and I was. It's a long run, and I was tired. I just needed a little <laughs> bit more break. But, uh, well, you do. Joe made, a, Joe made a great play, and I got a good look, and he did a good job of screening cycle off. And and coach, I also I know. I then I've done it throughout my coaching career now that you know, coach is big on win the last play of the half, win the last play of the game, and and he really spends a lot of time talking about how you how you leave the court each time, basically four parts, how you come onto the court, how you leave the court, how you come back on the court, how you leave the court. And I can remember over those four years, the importance of making sure our first minute is good, our last minute of the first half, our first minute of the second half, our last minute of the second half. And I can't remember the first minutes, but I know that was a good way of ending the first half, and obviously Keith took care of winning of how you end the game. So um, it was all about how Coach taught the game. Well, one of the really interesting things about this game is, I mean, you're on fire. You hit seven three-pointers in this game. But about, what is it, about 15 minutes left in the second half, 14 minutes left. Down by nine? Yeah, Eight? and... I think right. most people would look at the best player on the team, which you you were, as being a guy, just get the ball to him, let him shoot, put it up. He's made a bunch of threes. He's made seven. Go to him. But that is not how the right. game goes. You don't force anything. We were, no. we were in Louisiana. <laughs> yeah. we Smarty in Louisiana. time. It was, it was time for Keith. It, the last, last eight minutes of that game was – when you talk about, I, I think, and I'm a history buff, but when you talk about the last eight minutes of a national title game, in my opinion, it's hard to find too many players 
that took over a game like Keith did in an eight-minute frame, not just offensively, but defensively as well. He got defensive rebounds. He must have got two or three defensive rebounds where he went coast-to-coast to score um, just on his own. And that that last eight minutes out of him was phenomenal. And as you're getting into the final stretch, uh, you guys uh, crucially foul Derek Coleman, who misses. And as we're you're coming down for the last shot, it is told that, you know, we're going to look for Steve, but you're absolutely smothered. So can you take us through that final sequence from your point of view all the way through that, that beautiful shot going through the net? Yeah, I think there was just a great trust on our team. I can remember the timeout, the last timeout we had before the free throws. And, you know, Coach was always about let's be who we are. Let's get the shot that we know is our shot and just just do what we do offensively. So, you know, everybody, I think, assumed, you know, it was going to be me, but not the team. I, I think the team had been great if it was me. Mm. Uh, but I think the team had so much trust. We had so much trust on one another that we were just going to get a good shot. And it doesn't matter of the five guys that were on the court. We all trusted one another that if whoever got that shot was going to do the best possible thing they could do. Didn't mean they were going to make it, but they were going to take a good shot and do everything they could to make it. Um, and I think that's a case in point with Daryl. You know, Daryl could have forced up a bad shot, and he didn't do that. you got a clock that's ticking. You, I mean, it's hard when you catch a post feed and there's six seconds to go in the game uh, to have enough fortitude. Uh, I'm not going to take a tough one here because a lot of players I've coached, I've coached long enough to know, well, let me just take a tough one. If I miss it, uh, it was just a tough one. The clock was going down mindset. Uh, if I make it, I'm a hero. No, Daryl knew that there was a better shot out there and makes, in my opinion, the best pass in the history of Indiana basketball. And when you see Keith rise up on that side of the bucket, about a 50 inch vertical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the ball go in, just try to give us what it feels like to know that you well, are Well, I'm now. looking at the clock. Yeah. If you look at it, I'm looking at the clock and probably being a coach's kid, it goes uh, it goes back to just me eventually getting into coaching because my coaching mind sits off. I know we're ahead. They've got to call timeout. They're not calling timeout, and I'm just watching that clock tick, and I didn't want any of us to grab that ball. Right. Uh, I'm right underneath the net. Um, the ball's bouncing right next to me. And I'm just hoping they let that thing continue to run and because the clock didn't stop in those times. So it, it was great that it got all the way to one because it goes in at four. It's a big difference if you're going full court with three or four seconds to go versus one second. Mm-hmm. And so that was really what was going through my mind uh, is clock just keep going. The, I think one of the things that just amazes me about that play is very related to what you just said. And it speaks to the character and the basketball IQ of all of you on the court and to how Coach Knight has you prepared. No one on the court celebrates. All of you get back and play defense. You're all ready to play defense. Like you said, you're there under the bucket, put a little pressure on the ball, make them make a harder pass. Keith and Dean are sprinting back. Like Everybody is is in the moment and not celebrating a victory because there wasn't a victory yet. Timeouts get called, controversy about how much time is left. 
Coach puts in his defensive lineup. Uh, you are actually, I think, standing right next to Coach during that play on the on the sideline when Keith intercepts the the pass, and you are now national champions. Well, I I uh, and you said we're all back playing defense. I don't know if Coach would have told told you that I was interested in defense <laughs> when the, when Keith shot went in. I think what I was interested in was that clock just running. Okay. But um, I do remember this, and it does speak to what you're saying about the character of our team, the unselfishness of our team, and everybody knowing their roles. Um, as soon as the timeout was called and there was one second they were going through all that, I immediately, and this is how coach is, I mean, it's the relationship that we had was phenomenal, and I, I just love it. But I immediately went up to him. I said, put Steve Ollie in. Wow. and Because and, I wanted Steve in instead of me because better defender, 6'6", six, six, long, athletic, and – Coach immediately, I mean, we're talking about a national title game, and he, he's like, I've already done that. <laughs> oh, that is so good. <laughs> so, it's, uh, so we had a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun with it. Great minds think alike. So uh, the, the Derek throws the ball down. Keith intercepts it, throws it through the roof of the Superdome. And I want you to, to – Tell us what it felt like in maybe the most iconic picture moment of of IU basketball history is when you and Daryl and Todd climb up on that table and you hoist the trophy up in the air. What did that yeah. feel like after the journey you'd been on? Well, that's what was so cool about it was, you know, I go back to saying that there was a bigger plan for us of what we'd been through. Uh, we go three weeks if you just turn the clock back three weeks um we, we were close to being the first group not to, in coach Knight's history not to win a big 10 and in a three-week span we go to being just one of three groups to win a national title with him so in the last indiana national title so it, it it just um when you can stand on that stage and you can say next and there is no next there's just no greater feeling and uh, we had that feeling. I had that opportunity in 84 with the Olympic team. Uh, that was very special to have that then with Daryl and Todd, uh, teammates that I'd had for four years, uh, was just the, the most amazing feeling ever. Well, this caps off a, a collegiate career that, that I actually think starts with, uh, you know, playing high school basketball in Indiana and going to semi-state like you did, being named Mr. Basketball in the state of Indiana. I mean, beating Michael Jordan, number one team in the country your freshman year, leading the country in free throw shooting, playing in the Olympics, winning a gold medal. And even, Ward and I were talking about this yesterday, even some of the lows of what sports offer, like losing in the first round to a Cleveland State when you're heavily favored, you experienced the high of the highs, the low of the lows, in one of just the most remarkable collegiate careers of all time. When you think back on it now, Steve, uh, and now we are, what, 33 years removed from the 87 championship, when you just think back on your time, besides winning that championship game and the Big Ten championship, what one memory sticks out to you as, as, as just kind of the most defining moment, if you, if you will, of your career at Indiana? Yeah, that, that's hard uh, just because of all the practices. And I think any any player would tell you that, you know, the, the games are one thing, but the everyday practices and the training tables together and, 
you know, just the time you get with your teammates, those are the things you remember the most. Now, you get together as teammates and, you know, we talk about this incident and that incident and you <laughs> laugh and cry and that kind of thing. But uh, just I'm very blessed that the coaches that I got to play for and the teammates that I got to play with. Um, and I think that's what I really appreciated about Coach Knight in his recruitment and how he went about doing things. It wasn't uh, always about the most talented. It was about who you were as a person more than anything else. And I got to play just – I remember he told me in my – when he came up and sat in the, uh, the living room of my home in Newcastle with my mom and dad, he, he told me that these things would happen. He goes, you're, gonna, you're always going to play with good people. I'm going to recruit good teammates for you. You're going to have a chance to win championships. You're going to get your degree on time, and you're going to have a friend for life. Those were the four things he told me, and all four of those things came true. Well, it was to all of our benefit because, you know, at the time we, we were little kids and we looked up to you so heroically. Now now it feels like we're all just kind of old men together. <laughs> that that age difference really uh, doesn't matter near as much, but it did affect so many of us throughout our whole lives. For us, whatever we learned from our parents or grandparents about Coach Knight and former great teams that we didn't remember – it it was it was just something we'd been taught, but this was the first great IU team that we experienced, and and you were the guy. And essentially, no one is no player is more responsible for us becoming lifelong Indiana basketball fans in our own right than you. And. I guess it's my way of saying it's all your fault. We're sitting here in a garage in Glendale, California, doing an IU podcast. Well, I, I appreciate that very much. Probably makes me feel even older. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Now, but uh, I, I appreciate that because uh, you know I was that same. I was that same kid just a decade prior to you, a decade and a half prior to you, while I was watching the '76 team and then watching the 81 team. I mean, it's the same way. I just, I fell in love with Indiana basketball in, in 75, 76. And uh, I was right there in the middle of it being Martinsville and then the Newcastle. So, and a father that was in the business. So I got a firsthand look at just what it meant to be at Assembly Hall and what it meant to follow Indiana basketball. Well, Steve, I hope you know how much you still mean to Indiana University basketball fans. Uh, we we watch your old clips on YouTube. We talk about our own stories and how it relates to where we were when we saw you do certain things, the way you approached the game, your work ethic, your intensity, and 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 the way you represented Indiana basketball then and since. We have followed your career as a coach, and obviously we don't have another 10 hours to talk about all that, but we are just huge fans of yours. We root for you. We follow you. We want nothing but the best for you and your family. And we cannot thank you enough for taking the time to walk down memory lane with us. It has been a true honor. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun for me, and I very much appreciate it. And thank you for asking me to be on. It means a lot. Uh, I mean, it's Mount Rushmore. I felt like a little kid. I know. You know? I just kept flashing on, I mean, I'm telling you, 1987 senior game. I my whole family is there. I can't believe that you got to be there for I that. I know. It's my first game. Mm -hmm. and That's that's a good I, first game. I remember scalping tickets. 
you know? Nice. Uh, my dad. Yeah, yeah. Like, like being removed from him. Because back then, I think it was illegal. It was. Yeah. Yeah. And so my dad, like, negotiating prices, <laughs> like, and being, like, kind of scared. And I remember being intimidated by Assembly Hall. Sure. And how big it was. And, and I remember, like, I get to see Steve Alford. Mm-hmm. I get to see Steve Alford. And then it was really, I mean, Steve had a big game that game. I think he scored like 23 points. But Ricky Calloway had the huge game that really kept us in it and, and made the comeback. It was just, um, it was such a moment from my childhood. And we won. And I even remember going to Mustards afterwards. Wow. Do you remember Mustards? I do. I remember going to Mustards and kind of reveling in the fact that we won the Big Ten Championship. Oh, huge. And, and, and not even really thinking about the NCAA tournament. I mean, I just kind of felt like it was all over. Mm. You know, I was 10 years old. I didn't really know. But it's very hard for me to connect seeing that game in person to then winning the championship, even though it was just a few weeks later. I just remember that moment getting to see Steve Alford play basketball in person. The one time I was able to do that was, he. you, you said it perfectly, he is the reason or the person to blame for our fandom. And God, just amazing. The one time I got to see him play in person was after this season, there was a Big Ten all-star team, barnstorming team. Nice. Which, you know, we're learning that this is something that's been going on for a long time. Well, Daryl was on that? Uh, I don't remember anybody else. All I remember... It was in a gym. I can't remember which town. It was, you know, maybe like a half hour drive in some direction. And there's all these great Big Ten players in there. I'm sure Daryl or, you know, yeah, probably. Probably, probably the seniors, right? Yeah. yeah. I, I think it, Todd it, Meyer. It, it was definitely only seniors because, right. again, I'm assuming they're making money off of this. They're all right out of school and want a car or something. But I had finagled my way down to the baseline and I was leaning against the wall and it's one of these high school gyms where there's no bleachers on either end I'm pretty sure it might have been the Berry Bowl in Logan Sport Mm, now that this is the first time I've really thought about it in 20 years but I'm leaning back against one of those pads they have against the wall because if you're running too fast at the basket and you keep going you're going to smash yourself against the wall so I'm leaning back the ball gets out of bounds and Steve Alford's going to inbound it and so he's right there in front of me, and I'm pretty short at this point, and he's so close that I could just reach out and touch him. So I did. I just reached out <laughs> and touched his cap as he was inbounding the ball. So it wasn't like he had time to look back at me and be like, what are you doing, kid? Just like, I touched Steve Alford. And it was just so fun to see these guys in a really fun environment. There was no pressure. Nobody really cared who won or lost. It was like a celebration tour of Indiana National Champs with a couple of guys before they got sent off and became, you know, uh, a part of another team or other teams. And and that was it, you know. Ever since then, that's what we've been chasing. We've been chasing that moment where Keith Shot went through the net. And there's been a lot of great moments since, a lot of not great moments since. But, and I think this is a good thing, all of us who remember that shot, that pass by Daryl, that unselfish play by Steve, even though he'd hit seven three-pointers already in that game, that he was more than happy to let that play out, not say, you know, give me mine. That's yeah. None of us will be satisfied with anything less. Will we be happy enjoy the journey of getting back to that point? I hope so, and we do, even though it's been a really long, rough road. Um, it's what ingrained in us that this is what we 
ultimately expect from Indiana basketball is next. Yeah, for so many and, of us. And, and no next. No next. You just want it. He, uh, you know, you said it before we did this in one of our conversations that if you were going to put a picture of someone next to Indiana basketball in the encyclopedia, it would be hard to find a better person to put than Steve Alford. As a player, 100%. He just, he represented so much of what we love, the way he played, the work ethic, the fact that he wasn't athletically gifted the way so many athletes are, so many basketball players are, but he persevered and through hard work and determination and precision of skill. Well, and even excelled. The, the storied high school career yes. is a part of that because we love having, you know, Quinn Buckner or Keith Smart come in from out of state and be absolutely crucial as a player and to buy completely into the culture and the intensity of what it is and to lead, you know, certainly in, in Quinn Buckner's case, but when and you're talking about this brand of basketball, and and this is something that maybe, you know, a Bill Murphy or somebody with some real historical context was, what was Indiana basketball like up until Coach Knight? Because clearly we learned from Tom Van Arsdale that Branch McCracken was iconic in a similar vein. Yeah, really. and, and we heard it from to, Steve Green, too. Absolutely. What, if anything, you know, as far as nobody knowing how to play the motion offense right. and uh, a hand up on defense and a hand down to dig, right? The fundamentals I was taught at YMCA basketball as, as a fourth grader, how much of that came from coach? How much of that was here before Coach Knight? And to get a little bit more uh, of of what is the symbiotic relationship between grassroots high school basketball in Indiana and the history of the university, I think is kind of fascinating. It is. I. I it is. My take from just the conversations we've had is that I think some of the people that were around before it want to make it clearer Indiana basketball was Indiana basketball. And I'm talking about Indiana, not Indiana University. Well, and, and, before Coach Knight. And no doubt the 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 uh, passion the passion was there. Right. I'm I'm guess more thinking about, you know, style of play, fundamentals. Well, clearly the style. I mean, Branch McCracken was the her in Hoosiers. Sure. I mean, yeah. it was a very different style. I mean, defense was not something they cared about. But then you look at, and I don't know how accurate it is, but Hickory, aka Mylan. You know, you're seeing Gene Hackman where people are like, is he like a Bobby Knight? And was that more like a Bobby Knight character? Because I did well, want to ask clearly. Steve about that. That came out um, right, in 86. Year, 80, yeah. yeah. Right at the end of 86? Um, I thought it was 87. I, it was 86. It was during the senior year. I don't remember okay. if it was 80. But it was during 86. that year. Yeah. And I just like that we, if we'd had a little bit more time, be like, did you and the guys go to go the movie theater? You think know? like, oh, they're talking about us, kind of, yeah. like in some way. Um, yeah. No, I think it's funny. Uh, there was just so much confluence of things happening with Indiana basketball in the mid-'80s with the book Season on the Brink, with the chair toss, with the Olympics. How funny was it that Season on the Brink was comic relief for the I team? I know, so great. <laughs> By the way, uh, we didn't mention this, but that was the last group of amateurs to win the gold medal. Right. Uh, so let, Again, I, I mean, didn't get to finish the thought with Steve on the phone, but you and I talked about it. I mean— he played in the Final Four of the NIT in Madison Square Garden in New York City. He went on a five-country world tour before the senior year. I think, oh no, before his junior year. Yeah, what was that for? I, just, you know how 
uh, colleges sometimes go on those things. Crean did it a while so, back. So that was the Indiana team. Did yeah, that. yeah, that was oh. coach took the team. Got it. And they went on a five country world tour. He played in the Olympics in L.A. He played in the Sweet Sixteen against Michael Jordan. He lost in the first round. Played in the in front of the biggest college basketball crowd ever in history. Yes, I mean, I it's just it's unbelievable like his story is almost un. if you pitched it as a hollywood story people would be like i didn't get to tell him that i crashed I the audition so this is what i was telling eric we you know obviously uh we could have talked to steve alford as you all know for 10 hours <laughs> um but they came came along in 2002 right after i'd moved to la to do the season of the brink brink movie espn was doing it with brian dennehy playing coach knight and i didn't have was it the season on the Brink movie? I thought it was just Bob Knight. I thought it was an original screenplay. I didn't think it was based on the book, was it? I looked it up again to remember, and it was Wikipedia said it was a, an adaptation of Season oh, of the I Brink. I didn't know that. I crashed the audition to portray Steve Alford. I was like 22, <laughs> 23, six feet tall, skinny white guy with puffy hair, the right color, and I didn't have any agent or manager, and I don't even remember how I found out about it, but I did. So I like drove to the west side, found the place. It was kind of already like dark. It was late. Nobody else was in the waiting area. And I just went in there. And I remember somebody had gotten me the sides. Somebody was like, maybe somebody, another actor I knew had went up for it. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to go over there. And the casting director comes out. She goes, hi, do you have an appointment? I was like, uh, I, I'm actually crashing my first audition. And she goes, oh. She goes, I go, I grew up such a huge Steve Alford fan, a Bobby Knight fan, an Indiana fan. She goes, yeah, I know. She's like about 15 other guys told me the same thing that came in here today because I invited them. I was like, oh, okay. I I'm, I'm sorry. I just, I had to try. She goes, all right, why don't you come into the room? I was like, oh my God, it's happening. Meh. It didn't happen. It was a meh audition. I usually feel good leaving the room. And that one I was like, well... I got in there, no regrets, and when I heard it was actually kind of crap, I, I didn't feel so bad. I brought up the socks, shorts, one, two, three, because when I was learning how to play basketball, my dad was my coach sometimes, not all the time. He didn't want to put the pressure on me to be my coach, but he coached me for a, a couple years. I would love to have seen you guys in practice together. I drew a lot of charges, man. <laughs> Not in practice, but I mean, third grade. There was what at there home? Was, no, in our <laughs> J Jewish community center rec league. When I was in third grade, I was drawing charges. There was a videotape where I drew two charges like on consecutive plays and hit like seven points in a row. It is my highlight of my entire basketball career in third grade. We're playing on eight foot baskets. And my dad took me out of the game after my second charge because he was afraid that I was like going to be hurt. <laughs> and he was so happy. You hear my dad screaming on it. But I bring it up. I do want to see that. I got my parents probably have it at home. I got to find it. Jay Luck is the guy who uh, ran into me twice. Jay Luck, third grade. Big guy. He was he was stocky and he was so aggressive. Yeah, and I knew he he would just it was a straight line. Was he the equivalent of Evan Martin? No, he wasn't as big. Right, I mean relative. No, to, no, no. He oh. Jay wasn't like taller than me. He was just stockier and just more aggressive. And, you know and, how like in third grade, whoever is the most aggressive kid is the best kid typically. Right, that was Jay. He okay. wasn't like he couldn't shoot or anything, but he was just aggressive as hell. But it's not like he exploded your butthole. 
No, I was okay. I wanted to go back in. I was mad that my dad took me out and definitely did not explode my butthole. But I bring it up because I was learning how to play basketball and free throws were a big part of the game and I wanted to be a good free throw shooter and my dad made me watch Steve Alford shoot free throws. And he said, look, he does the same thing every shot. Free throws are about rhythm and pattern and routine and it's just muscle memory. So you want to do the same thing every single time you shoot a free throw. Look at what Steve does. Touches his socks, touches the shorts, three dribbles, then shoot every time exactly the same. And I know this, I'm not unique here, but that's the kind of impact a guy like him had on so many kids watching was we wanted to be that. We wanted, if he did something, I wanted to do that. That four-point play against UNLV, he holds both hands in the air and looks, and I think he gives the high five to Dean Garrett. But really, he gives him a high eight. (laughs) Right, Um, right. But I just, well, to this point, I hope he knows how much he means to all of us. To this point is why somehow does that exemplify what what we think of as a, a typical Indiana player? Well, part of it might be uh, that that Coach Knight got more out of less gifted players traditionally. You know, not so many of those guys went on to have incredible NBA careers because they had physical limitations, like most people do. Yeah, they were relatable. So when you 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 and I knowing, boy, we are not going to be six eight with a forty four inch vertical ever. Look at mom and dad; that's not going to happen for us. But you look at a guy who's like six two, you know, one hundred and fifty pounds as a freshman, and that's something you can relate to and be like if I'm determined and I work my ass off and I do the fundamentals and I'm smart and I put the time in maybe I could play the game the right way bust your butt use picks be unselfish be a leader but not you know have to even necessarily be a vocal leader. yeah he wasn't really the vocal leader but the other thing we didn't get to talk about it I mentioned it in the intro he's 11th all-time in assists how that's crazy he's right? 11th all-time in assists yeah because steve didn't take bad shots you don't shoot he shot over 50 percent for his career as, as a, a guard, guard and won the shot from the outside not a slashing guard shooting at the bucket that guy took jump shots and he shot in his freshman year he shot 59 percent from the field i would like to see who else did what that year in college basketball his senior year because you I can't imagine anybody shot the three better than him that year. Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to go back and look. You could easily say he's the first great college three-point shooter. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and he's just one of the best of all time. I mean, and there's, I don't think anybody, by the way, it's not a small sample size. He didn't like shoot 40. Right. He made 107. Which is more than James Blackman, who's number two, right? With 91. Yeah. And how many more games did James Blackman Jr. have? Oh, probably five at least. Yeah. yeah. And in an, in an era where three-point shooting is all you do. Like, Steve Alford wasn't, like, coming down on a fast break and chucking a three four feet behind the three-point line. What would be a fun exercise is to try to uh, look at his first three seasons and extrapolate what— What would have been a three? What would have been a three, you know, even just percentage-wise of how many threes he was making compared to twos his senior year, run that back through his first three years, yeah. and be like, would 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 Calvert have caught him? Would, well, I mean, I think you could, it would be so hard to do that because the percentage thing is weird because— well, I guess you, I guess you could, but even just say, let's say he, he made 107 his senior year. Just give him 20 a year. He's ahead of him. 
What's the difference right now between it was twenty four thirty something to twenty six thirteen? Yeah, so it's one hundred and fifty points. It's like give him, you know, so he needs to make one hundred and fifteen threes. In three years, he made one hundred and seven in one year. Yeah, yeah, it would still be Steve or one hundred and eighty somewhere. He he would be the all time, and by the way, he would have worked at it. Yeah, yeah, you know, right? I mean, he might have gotten better. He might have gotten better. <laughs> and he, he's just, uh, it's Mount Rushmore. I mean, it is Mount Rushmore, national champion, Big Ten champion, player of the year, huge records, Mr. Basketball State of Indiana, legend before he even stepped on the court. And that's the other part that is amazing to me is there are so many players who come in with incredible hype who, for whatever reason, don't live up to that hype. Steve came in with the hype and exceeded it. That is not Damon Bailey had an incredible four-year career at Indiana. Incredible. And most people think he didn't meet the expectations. I think if Damon had won uh, a championship, certainly as a, a senior, but at any point, he'd be in that conversation. As Yeah, I mean, his stats, I mean, know, he was on a loaded team, so yeah. that changes it. But his stats were never what Alfred's were. I mean, yeah. not even close. Yeah, he, what Alfred did statistically, but is when you're sharing of. it with yeah. Allen and Calbert, and Damon and had a again, Evans. he had an incredible career. But you can't say he exceeded the expectations that were laid for him. No, Steve did. I yep. mean, Steve came in as a folk hero, and then became All Big Ten two times in a row, uh, three times in a row, All American, All American twice. twice, Player of the Year. I mean, just and a national champion. And and he doesn't have to use product. His no hair is product. just like that. I mean, that's just God. It's, it's just you it's know what his product is. So much is? work for me. It's God's saliva. <laughs> that's his product. It's just God gave him a lick before he came out, and that was it. Please, I don't. I don't want to think about spit when I look at that beautiful head of hair. <laughs> uh, it, it's just sensational. This is the one when when you and I started doing interviews, and we're like, oh, who are the people that are on our absolute wish list? Steve was, I think, the first name we both said. Like, you got to get Alfred, and. Uh, I just love that he took the time with us uh, to walk down memory lane. Just incredible, truly an honor and and, we, a, and a thrill. I have not, I don't, I've never really been nervous before one before, but I really was. Yeah, you were nervous. We were both nervous, but we were like checking technical things more than we ever do. By the way, apologies for the lower quality at the beginning of this interview. I'm it worked so, itself out. I'm so that I almost had an aneurysm in those first 10 minutes. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening right now. I know. Luckily, I think the last hour 20 really worked itself out. Yeah. So uh, thanks for sticking through it. Uh, we got more big ones coming. And uh, follow us on Twitter at Hoosier Hysterics for the hysterics. No E, no I, but, but the, the sometimes, sometimes why. Socks, shorts. One, two, three, swish. From the halls of assembly, you'll hear us scream and shout. Our love of Indiana is manic and devout. Archie and his boys, we discuss in unique manner. We won't be satisfied until we hang another banner. Us two goofy guys go by names of Ward and Eric. And as you probably know by now, we're Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics.